Now entering Nerdist.com. You made it weird with Pete Holmes. What's happening, weirdos? A uh, wonderful episode with uh, the Forbes. The Forbes Friends of Rob Bell series continues. Uh, Rob was uh, kind enough to introduce me to one of the most interesting uh, and cool guys I've ever met in my life, Pete Rollins. A lot of you know him. He's an author. He's a philosopher. This is our first uh, like straight-up philosopher on the show, and he has so many great things to say, so let's get to that uh, as quickly as possible. No ad. No ad, guys. No ad. Just tour dates. Uh, a couple new ones. We got the Comedy Attic coming up this weekend in Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, also, speaking of Rob Bell, we are doing a tour together. Uh, we're doing our first show ever. It's called the Together at Last Tour. <laughs> Uh, and we're doing it at the, at the Regent Theater in Los Angeles on the 10th, on January 10th, uh, 2015, which is crazy. Uh, but it's going to be an amazing show. I really hope you, it's us on stage at the same time. That's really uh, all we know for sure. We're, we're kind of planning it right now. It's going to be funny. It's going to be, uh, you know, if, if Rob does this thing, it's going to be very profound and moving. I know he will, and uh, it'll be a good time. So I hope you come. Uh, that's going to be on uh, uh, January 10th. 2015. Then I'm going to be in Irvine, uh, California, also San Diego, a lot of California dates, Washington, D.C., and Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, those dates are all on PeteHolmes.com with links to the tickets, so check that out. In the meantime, enjoy Pete Rollins, everybody. What, what, what a good time. Get into it. This is the guest chair, if you don't mind, although this is usually... I did my first degree in scholastic philosophy, so I... So I, you know Aristotle well. I know Aristotle well, well. <laughs> probably forgotten a lot of it now, but... Uh. He said he knew your, your accent was spectacular, and I got... Aristotle's a very with-it dude. Uh, with it, and I love him, but uh, I thought maybe he knew you. He doesn't. Uh, He's going to uh, get to know you. Absolutely, in the next... In the next whatever... <laughs> This is door. a. We're just gonna keep going till we get things sorted out. I would, and we get shit done. You know, it's funny that you say that because I am. I'm one of those people, and I think maybe like you, you can wear those if you like. Yeah, if you want to hear, I, I like it. Try it, then try it without. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Some people go without. I kind of like don't them. Mind either. Yeah. I think you and I might be similar in the sense that I have this. Well, I won't. I won't. I won't group you in with me. But based yeah. on what I've read of yours and what I've scene of your talks and stuff on YouTube and whatnot. The free stuff, Peter. The free stuff. You haven't, you haven't paid for it. You, you haven't paid for no, one thing. I've never one paid iota. you one iota, nothing. You're not even giving me 150 for the car parking lot. <laughs> Where is, did you park? In the back? Yeah. If you get a ticket, I'll, I'll pay your ticket. Okay. We, we only, <laughs> we only do, uh, re, uh, reimburse. That's all we ever do. <laughs> but I, I'm fascinated with the idea. You're a friend of Rob, yeah. and we've met once before at, at his house. And uh, when we were surfing, when well, we you were, were surfing, about to surf. that's right. Well, I think we had already surfed. That's I was right. already, uh, you know, <laughs> I know you're Irish, so I just want to reinforce my own. As every American, I want to reinforce yeah. my own Irish identity. But I'm so pasty and salty. So like, <laughs> I'm trying to keep up with the Nordic uh, gentlemen, uh, Rob and, and Vanderveen. <laughs> They're just so sun. They love the sun, yeah, and I their know. hair turns blonde, and and they brown, and and they love the ocean. And I, yeah. I try, but I'm pretending. You're very tall for an Irish guy. Yeah, I know. What's that? What's that part? Of I you? don't know. Holmes, I believe you'd be, you'd be worshipped as a god back in <laughs> Ireland because you're so tall. I don't. Th- I know, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm in the wrong. Uh, I'm on the wrong continent. Yeah. I feel like 
Uh, again, like a lot of Americans, I think my Irishness has been uh, greatly exaggerated okay. by my father. I'm from Boston, too, and there's a lot of Irish pride there. There's more Irish in Boston than Ireland, I hear. Is that yeah. true? Well, I don't know, but I've heard there's a lot. different statistics yeah. like that. Like, there's more uh, Jews in New York than Israel, for yeah. example. I, I would believe that one just because there's so many people in Manhattan and Israel is <laughs> like so small. Yeah, yeah. I, But I don't know about that Boston one. But my father's... Uh, somewhere, and my grandmother was Sullivan. That's all I got. Okay. Everybody else, Holmes is an English name, yeah. and uh, my mother is a hundred percent Lithuanian. There's a very famous musician called David Holmes from Belfast. Is uh, that right? Yeah, he, he's great. He's a DJ. He does soundtracks for some big movies. Heat. He did the soundtrack for Heat. Oh, really? But uh, he's a great DJ. But anyway, <laughs> that you're, maybe you're related. Maybe <laughs> I would love that. We had a we had a wonderful comedian named Dave Holmes on this was podcast. It? Yeah, he's a very very funny guy. But I don't know. When I when I hang out with Rob and David Vanderveen, who who you know as well, right? No, I am. I'm definitely. He's been on the show, hasn't he? He has. Yeah, he has. I'm going to move this just a little oh, bit yeah. closer. Don't you keep where oh, you are. Oh, speak oh, naturally. Absolutely. That's just going to pick you up oh. better. Would it be my English accent for this? Sure, go ahead. If that's okay, go ahead. Try. Like, uh, do it. Actually, I can't do accents. I, I can't even do my own very well. So <laughs> anybody else? You sound Scottish to me. Well, the Northern Irish and the Scottish are very close, very similar. Very similar culturally and similar. Is that right? Harshness to our accent. Because the Southerners, you have the poetic. The Ireland. Irish, Ireland. Yeah. Ireland. You yeah. say Ireland. Ireland. I say how now, Brian Cow, which is very harsh. <laughs> <laughs> no. That is the perfect place for you to be as yeah. a person. Yeah. That okay, that makes sense because what I did was I was watching some of your talks this morning. I watched Rob interview you, oh, which was great. That was fun. And then I watched uh, a little bit. I didn't want to spend. That was Fat Pete, by the way. I put on a lot of weight when I when Rob interviewed me. And the really sad thing is that's probably the most seen video I've ever done. Oh, that's and I'm funny. Ah, like, oh, you know. I did think you were like you're like a you're energy wise you're like Jack Black, but you're yeah. Irish. Uh, Jeff, so oh, the joke Jeff. would be. Jack Green. Oh. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't open the fact. <laughs> it's a terrible joke. But going back to this is the idea that I want to put to you. Yeah. Is uh, uh, I am I I love people that are just operating on another level, and I think we can agree that r- our friend Rob is one of those people. Yes. And then when I find them, I just want to keep them as close to me as possible, and just kind of live in a utopia. So. Uh, By the way, have we started yet? We have started. <laughs> wow, well, there you go. You just start. Does, does somebody not click? A no, well, that would only be if there was video. What about makeup? No. Oh, yeah, no, no. Still? I've got a face for radio, so it's okay. It's good. <laughs> you got a voice for radio, like, too. Yeah, people right. are gonna, I guarantee people are going to love this episode just because of your exotic accent. Wow, nobody understands the word I'm saying. That's people why I get away know. with what I say. That, I, think. <laughs> I think, honestly, I think really? that's the reason, yeah. Because I'm telling people that you can't be happy and life's difficult. Nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. But I say it with an Irish accent, and it sounds somehow okay. I agree. Yeah, that's why we have Joel Osteen, and and for, uh, from your part of the country, we have you, Pete Rowling. Yes, <laughs> there is actually somebody created a Twitter account called uh, Joel Rollenstein. No, and it, was, it was the the sayings of Joel Osteen mixed with my tweets. It was very funny. Is that right? So it started off really happy, like you know, you can have everything, and you will still live in despair. Oh <laughs> Things like that. It's quite funny. Yeah. Are you? I didn't get. I didn't pick that up from the little. I started to read one of your books, and and like I said, I read the blogs that you sent me, but yeah. I didn't pick up too much despair. Are you? Know Known as a kind of a down, downtrodden fella? Well, my big thing is that we all want to be happy. We all want to be complete. We all want to find something that will make us whole. And I'm saying that we can't. 
that we have to embrace our unhappiness, our sadness and our brokenness. So some people think that's depressing. Yeah. But actually, it's not depressing. It's right. really good. It's a really good thing. I've had that conversation many times. Actually, recently, uh, I was actually, this is going to be a name drop. I was talking okay. to Judd Apatow about the idea that the Zen idea of meaninglessness makes him sad. And then I was another name drop. I was talking to Deepak Chopra and I represented Judd's fear for him. I said, some people like in the Seinfeld writer's room, they hung up a picture from the Hubble telescope of the universe, right? Just everything. And if they'd uh, run into a problem with a script or a joke, or if they had some sort of problem, they would look at the picture and remember how insignificant they were and take great amounts of bliss from that. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, Judd, and I don't think he's alone in this, says that he doesn't like that. He wants to be powerful. He wants to be empowered and he wants to be significant. Whereas I, I tend to fall into the Seinfeld camp. The yeah. drops of rain on a windshield and we're all going to get wiped away and happiness is overrated. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, kind of. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, would, I would go with that. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, the analogy I like to use is we're all haunted houses. You know, we're all full of ghosts. Oh, uh, You know, people that we've hurt and people we've loved and people we've lost and and all of these things are in us, and we've got two options. We either push them down and try and forget about them and drink and party, yeah. uh, or we make peace with our ghosts. Yeah. And uh, for me, the, the option for having a full life is to make peace with our ghosts, not yes. to run from them. But everybody, and L.A. is the worst place for this. Yeah. People think that religion promises you happiness. But in L.A., everybody's saying, try this new drug, ayahuasca, try this new technology, you know, be famous or, or be rich, yeah. and then you'll be happy. Yeah. These are people who are all selling happiness. And I think the more you pursue that, the more unhappy you get. The more you keep trying to get the happiness from the next thing, the yeah. novel thing, the new thing, and it's not going to do it for because you. Because nothing ever works. What about the unending pleasure? Because this is Deepak's answer. When I asked mm. him that question, I said, what are you, what, how, why are you happy? And his answer, I, I've been meditating on it, not literally sitting still and thinking yeah. about it, but you know, it's been in my mind for a month now, is he said, happiness that's contingent on something is another type of misery. So mm. he said, I am happy right now because of the joy and bliss of being, the utter being. It's not mm. contingent on anything. Yeah. And I've noticed that. That's, that's been a big thing for me. It's been helping me on long plane rides. Like, I just got in from Boston, and I'm always doing that. That's, like, a very practical thing where I'm like, I'll be happy when I'm home. I want to mm-hmm. see my girlfriend. I want to sleep in my bed. And we're always doing that. We're fantasizing about the future, and that's when happiness is. But there is something to what you're saying about happiness being this unattainable. It's not ayahuasca. It's not fame. Yeah. Ask Jim Carrey. He's got that great quote. I, I wish everybody could have everything they ever wanted so they could see that that's not the answer. Yeah. But then, like, if we boil it down, if we reduce it to just what in this moment is lacking, and when you can really get your mind around that, I find the answer is often nothing. It's just your ego and it's your mind wanting to go, you'll be happy when you do the ayahuasca, you'll be happy when you're famous, you'll be happy when the plane lands, just to be a simple thing. You'll be happy when you're in your bed, you'll be happy when you're playing your Xbox, you'll be happy when you're having sex or you're eating or you're uh, doing a drug or whatever it is. But really when you just go like, I am happy for no reason that that's true happiness, what do we think? I I think that's beautiful. But also, the- <laughs> <Is> that- <laughs> okay. I can see in your face yeah. not exactly buying well, it. But my my only thing is that happiness is definitely a good emotion and it's a good emotion to have. But for me, also sadness is part of life. Uh, 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 get growing old, dealing with loss, all of these are Decay. part of life. Decay is part of life, and so being happy is definitely a good thing. But what's more important to me is how do we bear all of our emotions? How can I live? when things are really tough? How Mm. can I experience it? A type of life before death, which isn't always happiness, 
So happiness is a good thing. But imagine we were always happy, even in that kind of zen-like happiness. Mm -hmm. That would kind of be boring. I mean, whenever someone dies, they write rest in peace. Because in a sense, the perfect peace is death. And if you have perfect kind of zen peace in your life... You're dead. You're kind of dead. Yeah. You know? And the closer you get to that, the more dead you are. I actually like a life where there's, there's, we go out, as you say, there's sex, there's alcohol, there's fun, there's political causes, there's, there's stuff to get your teeth into. All of those have negative sides. If, if you love a political cause, it's not all happiness. Yeah. I mean, some of it's terrible, you know, whenever you get defeats. But your love of the cause means that even when you're unhappy, you're fulfilled. Right. Is this... Uh the only pain is uh, to feel nothing at all, sort of that thing. Yeah, I think so. That you know, I, I'm not. I'm not advocating this. This kind of like r- r- um, removal of yourself from life. Yeah, I want to kind of go. How do we, you know, really embrace? That's life? interesting because that's Rob's thing too. Rob yeah, Bell. That's, that's his right. big thing. He he's not really drawn to the mystical idea of non-locality, meaning I'm here but my spirit is elsewhere. Yeah. He's like, it is the pain, it's the losses and all that sort of stuff. In fact, I was telling him one of the only sermons I've ever remembered. I went to this church called Grace Chapel in Lexington. The only sermon. I saw hundreds, hundreds. And I, I tried to pay attention. It wasn't yeah. like I was just, sometimes I was, you know, daydreaming or whatever. Yeah. But I remember this one where he had these two circles on the stage. Uh, there was a gray one and there was a red one. And the red one was the winner circle and the gray one was the, like, loser circle. It was, but he stood in the gray one and it was like, it's here that I, I learned every single thing. And the more I talk to people that are in their 30s and up, that I get that reinforced over and over and over and again. That idea that that's the best thing that happened to me isn't just some story of a, of a non-plateau, non-peaking, non-valuing happiness. It's the story of like a lot of despair and coming back. Is that, Absolutely. Yeah? I mean, my, my concern is our main problem in life is if we attach to one thing that we think will make us happy. Mm. So, I mean, Oscar Wilde, similar to the Jim Carrey quote, Oscar Wilde said, there's only one thing worse than not getting what you want, and it's getting what you want. <laughs> and the same thing is, it's like you get it and you realize, oh, you know, that, that didn't give me what I thought it did. Right. I mean, being famous gives you something, but if you think it's going to satisfy the gap in your being, yeah. you're, you're going to get all wrong. You know? What do you want? What do you want? What I want, well... (laughs) (laughs) I know we want some happiness, we agree on that, but... Well, I mean, the reason why I do the work that I do is because I realize that I'm a victim of this mentality. Um, And I seek it in relationships often, you know, so I think that if I get the perfect (laughs) relationship, uh, Mm. then I'll be happy. And you see this in other people as well. I, I attach to, like, individuals, but some people go out with multiple people so they're always on tinder they're they're going out in dates all the time yeah constant novelty and when they're not on a date they're depressed and they think it's because they're not going out with somebody but in some respects you could say that actually going out with people is hiding their depression Mm. and that what they really need to do is face up to why they have to continually go out with people what is it that they're they're running from Mm -hmm. that that they think oh if i am in the right relationship it's going to be perfect right well, this is what you were writing about in the most recent blogs. What was it? I'm, I'm blanking on the term. I have it written down, but it's the idea... Of denial? Yeah, denial oh, yeah. And, and the way that we're not dealing with the things that we're actually dealing with. Well, yeah. If I keep going out on Tinder, I don't have to face the thing. Yes, and you see this in Facebook, uh, you know, where if, if, if somebody on Facebook has like a picture of them happy with their partner, that's mm. great, they're probably happy. But if there's like a hundred pictures come up and every week they're saying how happy they are, you start to think that it might be denial that they're actually very unhappy. Because it's the same thing about being an alcoholic. If you're an alcoholic, you'll continue to deny it. If you're in denial, say, oh, I'm not an alcoholic, I could give up any time I want. And the more they deny it, 
the more you wonder whether that's actually something they're suffering from. Mm -hmm. So a lot of us live like on Facebook, for example, you know, we try to project out this image of happiness. And the more frantically we do that, the more you kind of suspect that actually there's an unhappiness. It's the the pastor that's preaching about hellfire for the gays that is is fucking male pressing. Exactly. That's that's what's happening. And that's interesting. But aren't we all unhappy? That's what I. That's a message I'd love to get out there. Yeah. Because as a friendly guy, I am gregarious. I can be extroverted, and I, I certainly am very, very silly, mm-hmm. and I enjoy it, like being light. But I'm also unhappy. Well, because well, you're a comedian. <laughs> oh my goodness, I've never met the most messed up people in my life <laughs> as comedians, honestly. And that's what I love about comedy. Comedy for me is the moral voice of today, and the the reason why I think that is, a good comedian brings up the stuff that nobody wants to talk about. You know, they laugh about the humiliating things about being human. They bring up the stuff in politics that nobody will mention. But they get us to laugh at them. Mm -hmm. They bring the truth that's in us up to the light of day. That's right. And then we kind of laugh about it and we're freed from it. That's right. So actually comedians for me are the the really paradigm of what this looks like. Uh, People who are often messed up in their lives. Like I have a friend who's a comedian and Every relationship she has is terrible. And then she phones me up one day and says, Pete, I just phoned a suicide hotline. She was telling me the truth. Phoned a suicide hotline. She said, um, and, and it was engaged. I was like, and, she, and she started to laugh about this. Then we laughed about how it was engaged. You couldn't get through to the person on the oh, other Oh, it was line. engaged. It was busy. Yeah, it was, engaged, it was busy. <laughs> and, and, and I realized like, we were laughing about this. And I thought that's what comedians do. That's they right. They take the darkest of things right. that we all feel sometimes. And then they somehow get us to look at them. But that's why this is something Rob and I bonded over. I was like, I think it's preposterous that I am more able to go in any direction. Like the queen on the chessboard. A comedian can go anywhere. Mm. Rob also can go anywhere, and I admire that about him. But a traditional pastor, really, he's more like the king. He can only go certain moves. And to to a point I've heard you make, he can only really reinforce what they've already heard back to them. And also, something I've heard you say, be a scapegoat to them when and if it doesn't work. Well, it's like therapy. So somebody goes to a therapist because they think the therapist will make them well. Mm. Make it better. Make me able to have a relationship or whatever. Now, gradually over time, a good therapist will not give the person what they want because they can't. What they'll do is they'll help that person come to terms with their brokenness to the point that they can, you know, embrace themselves. In the same way, this is what people go to church because they think Mm. the church will make them whole and complete. A bad pastor says, yeah, we can do that. Just give more money, read this book more, do these prayers, everything will work out. But a good pastor refuses to do that and gradually helps the people look at their brokenness and confront their demons. Mm. There's an idea which nobody believes because it's ridiculous, which is <laughs> you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Yeah. Like, we all know that's ridiculous. Don't yeah. look at the truth of how I feel. Bury that stuff down. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But what if th- it's true? What if, if we're able to be honest about the truth of our deepest anxieties and fears and pains and we're able to bring them to the light of day We'll actually find freedom in that very act. Mm-hmm. That's what therapy does at its best. Mm-hmm. That that idea that uh, something I've heard you say as well is uh, being people that are both you and I are both spiritually inclined. I, in that we're curious. We want to discuss mm-hmm. these things. We want to talk about God, for lack of a better term. Yeah. But when I, I heard you talk about owning the doubt, you, you talked about one side being uh, atheists and or and then one side being uh, theists. I guess yeah. we'll say. 
And then when you start to disarm that situation by saying, like, you know, half of the time I think of what I, I say is, is horse shit. Yeah. And I'm afraid of dying. And I'll, I admit that I'm looking for an answer and I'm looking for something to soothe the, the endless black void. And, yeah. and then you get the atheist to say, you know, sometimes I look for something more. I have peak experiences, too. I have moments where I'm, I'm seeing something beyond this, this veil of my reality. But that doesn't mean I believe in, in, in your thing. And they're like, well, I don't believe in your thing. And then you can kind of disarm it. Absolutely. That, and that's called splitting. Splitting is a defense where you break the world into a very simple black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we say they're the good people, they're the bad people. Now, we all do this at times. And we, it's sometimes a good thing. Uh, one example is this woman whose brother... Uh, was killed by um, some drug dealers. Her whole family gathered together to get some of these people put in prison. Now, at the same time, one of this woman's friends said, listen, your brother wasn't a completely good guy. Mm. He really wrecked my life. Now, she couldn't handle that because they've made her brother into a type of angelic, innocent figure because they had to do that mm. for the sake of... because they couldn't cope with the That's pain. Right. But after, after the, the legal thing, after the people were put in prison... The woman was able to realize that she'd split the world into goodies and baddies. And she was able to reconcile with her friend um, and say, okay, it's not as black and white. Now, my argument is fundamentalism is an example of splitting. A group that are unable to deal with anxiety and doubt and unknowing break the world into a simple us and them. But by calling them fundamentalists, we, we distance ourselves from our own splitting. So what I would say is we, we can all tend to do that. Atheist communities can split as well. Right. Splitting is a defense mechanism, and, and it's not always bad, but it becomes bad. If you split for too long, you'll become isolated, you'll become broken, it will damage you. And uh, kind of my argument is simply that we, we should become more sensitive to how we do this in our own lives. Instead of calling it fundamentalism, like something somebody else is doing. Yeah, they're doing it. They're the ones who... Because even that's a form of splitting. You're doing it, yeah. We're we're saying they're... Because the the issue is actually within supposed fundamentalist churches, it's a lot more complicated what people's motives are and what people think than we might might imagine. But you have a lot of empathy. You you seem to encourage empathy, meaning you... I I heard you speak about the idea that for Lent you gave up God. You encourage people to give up God, meaning you read uh, Nietzsche and you read uh, Hawkins. Hawkins? Uh, a little bit, yeah, we do Hawkins, Hitchens, we do that. But, I knew it was um, Hitchens and Hawkins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's two dudes. Yeah. There's but, two but, but mostly the old school, mostly like uh, Freud and Feuerbach and Nietzsche. Those yeah, ones. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah, we do the whole range. And some comedians like Darren Brown. Oh, and, well, he's a, he's a magician, I suppose, but also, uh, what's the guy in the office? Ricky uh, Gervais. Yeah, yeah Ricky mm-hmm. Gervais has got some really interesting critiques. Yeah, yeah, huge atheist. Huge yeah. atheist. Penn and Teller, or uh, oh, yes, Penn right. Gillette, actually, yeah. is, the, is the big atheist one. I think Teller is as well, but he doesn't talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that idea that you're not splitting, I find that very, very attractive, the idea that you're like, what are we so afraid of? I was talking to Patton Oswalt, the idea that I really think that people are afraid that when you open up your mind, you're going to let in something that's going to be very inconvenient for yeah. you, uh, meaning you might lose friends, you might lose your family. Um, what, like The example I always go to is um, Scientology as, as an ideology is inconvenient for a lot of people. What, you said that you went and, and talked to them, but what if, what if it was persuasive and then you're a Scientologist and, and in, a, in a sense socially now you feel a little bit fucked? 
Or if you start really uh, entertaining everything, you could be like, well, what if I am attracted to men or something? And, and in a way, you could be like, now I'm fucked in that way because yeah. I have to tell my wife that I'm gay and I should have never looked into gayness. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I know it's preposterous, but I think that's what people are afraid of. Yeah. If we don't seal off and if we don't solder the border, mm. we're going to let some ideas in that are going to fuck up our clan. And, and the irony is um, the more you shut yourself down, the more you create a, a desire to do the opposite. So, for example, um, if you if you say to your child, "Don't look behind that closet in that closet when I leave the room," the the no makes them really want to do it. And ir- ironically, if you've got a bad habit, and I tell you, "Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it," um, that is either not going to be effective, right? And uh, you're going to do it anyway, or you'll repress it, and it will come out in anger or something, in over drinking or whatever. Yeah. But if I if I actually treat you with grace and say you don't have to change, I think you're great just the way you are. Ironically, a space where you don't have to change, where you're accepted for who you are, is the experience, is where you're more likely to be transformed That's and right. change. So in AA, the first thing they do is you admit you're an alcoholic in a room that doesn't ask you to change, that just says yes, yeah, so are we. Mm. But ironically, that's the first step. Before you get onto the 12 steps, the first step is just, I've got a problem in a community of grace. Hmm. Fucking A. <laughs> <laughs> but that is what we do. I, I feel like we're a fix-it uh, people. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's just modern people or if that's the people that I know or, or if I'm just talking about myself. But I tend to want to like guide people. And I, Lately, you're, you're actually kind of hitting on something that I'm dealing with in my life. I want to give advice to people because I want to help them. Yeah. I'm somewhat high-functioning, whatever that means. And yeah. then I want to help other people be high-functioning. Again, whatever that means. Yeah. And then uh, I'm finding that the success is really just loving them for who they are, but really loving them for who they yeah. are and not just pretending that you love them yeah. for they are, which is what I did for the bulk of my traditional Christianity was like pretending to love the yes. sinner yes. when really I was like, we're, yeah. we're the real ones over here and that person had an abortion. Yeah, you know and, and, and the truth is most people's issues, let's call them issues, are not problems, they're the solution to a problem. So in other words, if someone's drinking too much, we think that's the problem. We, you should stop them drinking. Mm. But if they stop drinking, they might take up smoking or fitness or religion in the same way they used to drink. <laughs> what you have to work out is what is the problem that the drinking is the solution to? Mm. What is it in their life that they're drinking to escape from? If you fix that, you fix the issue. I, just last week, I talked to somebody who worked with a child who was bedwetting. Now, way past the age when this child should have been bedwetting. Mm-hmm. 22. And, yeah. <laughs> yes, it was me. <laughs> I have a friend. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I can't tell the story. <laughs> See, that's comedy. That's going yeah, up and saying, that's a standard comedy device to be like, you know, and it was me, and, it was 30, and I'm 35, yes. and I'm still waiting to bed, sure. Oh, yeah. Well, this part, this friend. Yeah. Uh, um, so the, the kid was in, in therapy, but then he got the feeling something else was going on. So he brought the parents in, and he worked out that the parents were arguing, and the child was denying it, was trying to pretend there wasn't a problem mm. in the family. Mm. When he got them all to talk about the problems in the family, the kid stopped wetting the bed. Yeah. So, the, so there the issue is you don't try to solve the bed wetting. That won't work. What you try and do is you work out what the bed wetting is a symptom of. And a symptom, the very a definition of a symptom is basically an act that covers over an unpleasant truth. Hmm. An act that covers over something you don't want to look at. Fucking 
shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is a free show. Yeah. People just download this for free. Wow, they, they don't pay for this? No, they don't pay. <laughs> That's why I can't pay for your parking. Oh, wow. It's only $1.50. Come on. <laughs> Buy me a coffee. <laughs> so it's symptoms. Yeah, absolutely right. So the yeah. family is arguing. And then, again, not in a supernatural way, but just a psychological way, mm-hmm. there's a manifestation of that almost like a release, like yeah. a, a letting out a bad thing and, and getting that attention yes. drawn to it. And the, the way it works, think of it as like a relationship where there's there's things that are acceptable and there are things that are unacceptable, right? Mm-hmm. But there's also in bad relationships a constellation of, of acceptably unacceptable things. And what I mean by that is, say two people and they're trying to say everything's great they've got their Facebook image out there right <laughs> but 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 there's like one's had an emotional affair the other person is, has kind of caused bitterness and resentment right but nobody talks about it everybody knows it's there but nobody talks about it and they don't talk about it because they go if we bring it to the surface there'd be a crisis but the issue is the crisis already exists. It's just not being looked at. And it will come out in other ways. Maybe the husband will overwork. Maybe the wife will spend all her time on the computer. Mm. Maybe the kid will act out in school. All of those things are the symptoms which are saying there's something underneath. Now, the answer is to bring the unspoken to the surface. And then one of two things will happen. Either the couple will say, we can't work this out, and they'll go their separate ways. Or they'll say, we're going to change things. But the, the system can't stay the same. Yeah. Um, wh- one other example in a religious sense. A friend of mine says that, told me that every time her parents come around, she hides all the alcohol in the house, mm. right? So I'm naive and I say, oh, so they don't know you're drinking? And she goes, oh, no, no, they asked me to do it. So I'm like, so your parents ask you to hide the alcohol so that all of you can pretend that you don't drink? She says, yeah. Why? She says, because if we talked about it, there'd be a crisis, but then as I talked to her, we were saying, well, the crisis already exists. Yeah. It's just not being talked about. What you have to do in that family is bring it up to the surface. And either there'll be a split in the family, but that'll just show you what the family was like. Or you'll have to find a new way to relate to each other. I get, Jesus, I, I relate. You know, it was just Thanksgiving. And I want mm. to talk about my family, but I don't want to betray them. I don't mind sharing everything about myself. But when it comes to my family, there are certainly underlying <laughs> issues. I often say my parents are still together, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just a joke, but it, it, yeah. but that's okay. That's comedy trying to mine down into things. I'm not saying my parents should split. I love my parents. I think they could be very happy together. But suffice it to say, like any long marriage, there are things you can feel them. We call it elephant in the room or whatever, but mm-hmm. it's really more like something underneath the surface that's going to cause some sort of earthquake. But when you talk about it, you, no one, again, I don't know if it's the Eastern Europeanness of us all, but it's just like, would rather die yes. than address these yes. things. And then, and then there's me, Trotolodido, over here in Los Angeles, and I find great success, personal success. I don't mean financial, I just mean as a person, opening all the goddamn windows yes. in my house. Yeah. All of them. Yeah can't stand having one shut yeah. and once you get that wind on you it's amazing and then you get yeah. you feel your real identity yeah. but that's because you're shit at defense mechanisms and and that's good that's what most artists are crap at defense mechanisms <laughs> the great artists generally say what you're not supposed to say uh, one of my favorite philosophers is Kierkegaard and Kierkegaard once said what is a poet a poet is someone who screams and cries in agony, but whose lips are so formed that when they cry out, beautiful music is formed. Mm. And so when we say to the poet, sing to us again, we're really saying, may new disasters befall you. Mm. And in a, in a similar way, a comedian is, is often the same. They're actually just screaming out 
some painful stuff, but mm-hmm. their lips are so formed that jokes come out. That's right. <laughs> and, and then we listen to those jokes and you help me connect with those parts of myself that I wouldn't otherwise be able to connect to. That's right. The analogy for me is this. If I've just gone through a breakup, I could either go to a pub and get drunk, forget about it, but then the problems come back the next day. Or I can go to the pub and I can have a drink and I can listen to a singer-songwriter talk about the difficulties of relationships. I can face that in myself and start to mourn because we have to mourn these things Mm. and ultimately become healthier. Mm -hmm. So you opening up the windows, that's exactly what you should be doing as an artist, you know, as a a comedian. Yeah, well, I appreciate that because that's a very high compliment. It didn't sound like a traditional compliment, but I took that as a high compliment. (laughs) I I do a show every year at the Paradise. It just happened after Thanksgiving, and I do it the Saturday after Thanksgiving because that's when I'm my funniest because I just spent a week with my family. Of course, that makes sense. That makes total sense. (laughs) sense. And I go up and I'm, I'm up there and, and something you said about the poet, it, it reminded me that I really am up there a little bit crying, a little yeah. bit crying. I talk about, it's very light stuff. I talk about how my father has more framed photos of Ted Williams. You know who that is? I don't think so. He's a Red Sox. Uh, okay. He's a baseball man okay. from the Red Sox. I don't know anything. But we, it's a very classic Boston thing to idolize these, these classic Red Sox players. Uh, so he's got more frame. I said this. I go, mm. my dad has more framed photos of Ted Williams than he does of the family. That yeah. sounds like that's a baby. Yeah. Get that guy a breast. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he's sad and he's crying. Speaking of breasts, I also talked about my mother uh, showing me photos of her as a child and saying, aren't I sexy in this one? Yeah. Another fucked up yeah. thing. And see, these aren't jokes. That's hilarious. These are funny. These are brilliant. <laughs> but this is just you going and bleeding on stage. That's it. That's, it. That's exactly what Kierkegaard <laughs> said is the poet just bleeds on stage. But they've got this weird gift or curse that right. what, that, that bleeding is something that helps us. So yeah. that, that's the per- every comedian I know, every comedian I know, they're at their best when they're up, in a sense, they're most broken. That's right. It, it really, when I'm in my house with my family, I am singing songs, I'm doing characters, all the <laughs> stuff that they ask us to pretend to do. Yeah. Let's say you were to audition for SNL that go, do five characters. You come to my house on Thanksgiving and I'll do ten because we're all tap dancing on that, on that earthquake that's about to happen. So I revert to that old me that wants to like juggle plates yeah. just to like keep everybody entertained and get the fuck out of there, you yeah. know what I mean? But uh, I, I'm just agreeing with you. Well, that's, that's why. I mean, that's why I would never want to go to you know these classes that teach you how to do comedy or whatever. Yeah. Ultimately, the skill you need as a comedian is to have a really screwed up life. Yeah. And I don't want them to teach me how to do that. Well, you've got got to start. You've got to be an alcoholic. Yeah, yeah, you've got yeah, to yeah. have a dysfunctional relationship. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Everything else is window dressing. Right. Uh, window dressing. But that kind of goes back to my original question for you: was is isn't isn't everybody unhappy? And I brought this up on the, on the podcast before, but I can't make the point enough. When Robin Williams killed himself, everybody was like, he seems so happy. Yeah. And I get really upset because he was. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. To your, I think I'm going to steal the words from your, from your brain. Of course he was happy. He was everything. Yeah. We're all everything. Yes. In him, the scale tipped towards darkness, and he, and he lost that battle that day. But I mean, like, of course he was happy. Like, it doesn't mean he was faking it. No. When he was on The Tonight Show, of course, that was a yeah. happy man. That was a, a manic, gifted, talented man who was also sad. So aren't we all sad? It's true. Well, there's a, another line from Kierkegaard. Hit it! Line, but he you says, can't. Uh, I got tingles the first time. That's some good juice. Well, he's good because he, he basically said something like this. He says, I'm not trying to tell you you're unhappy. 
You know, I'm telling you, you're, yeah, he says, I don't want to make you unhappy. I don't want to make you sad. I don't want to make you depressed. He says, I'm telling you, you already are depressed. You just don't know it. Right? Mm. And you go, what does that mean? But I actually had a family member who was the most outgoing person in the whole family. And she went to the doctors because she was having trouble sleeping. And the doctor couldn't find anything wrong. And then he said, I think you're depressed. And she was like, how can I be depressed? I'm really happy. I'm always out. And he's kind of going like, well, yeah, that's what you would do if you're depressed. Always be out and always be around people because Mm. you can't stand to be on your own. Now, the reason why I say that is not because I'm saying everybody is in despair. The reason why I say that is because um, often the people who look the happiest are the ones who are most fighting something deeply unhappy Mm. in them. And, and the big trick to be happy is, in a sense, to give up the pursuit of happiness. There's the, there's the freedom. Surrender. Yeah, because yeah, there's, like, there's, there's the freedom to pursue the thing which will make you happy. And we all have that. But there's a strange second thing, which is the freedom from the pursuit of happiness. Mm. And that's more difficult. So the freedom to pursue your happiness. We've all got that. Every, every magazine, every journal, every TV advert is, is telling us to do that. Pursue. You know, you can be happy. You can do it. But what I want to say is there's a second freedom, which is the freedom from the pursuit of happiness that paradoxically will actually make you happier. And again, a strange thing that nobody would ever believe is if you want to find your life, you, you got to lose it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's funny that you say that. I've been thinking a lot about because my parents were watching a lot of TV mm-hmm. and I, I, I'm not I, I guess I am that guy. We we have Netflix and stuff. We watch movies and films and stuff. Films. <laughs> we watch fucking The Comeback on HBO Go. Great show. But it, it, it's not like we're just watching, uh, you know, sermons, lectures, TED Talks. But, so <laughs> we have TV, but we don't just watch TV. They watch TV. Mm-hmm. And I was watching just how much that is. I don't want to sound too much like a hippie here, but it really is sold to you, that idea that it's the Buick, it's the Red Sox winning, and it's the fucking Big Mac. Yeah. It's the goddamn, it's the Happy Meal. Yes. It's called the Happy Meal. Yeah. The genius. That's good. <laughs> that came up with calling it the Happy Meal. Yeah. It will make you happy. Postpone your happiness. I think we might be saying similar things. You're saying surrender the pursuit. I think I'm saying, I say don't postpone your happiness, meaning mm-hmm. be happy for no reason. Yes. So I think those are similar. Don't those you think are those are in bed together? Absolutely. And interestingly, this is my critique of secularism, which is... Is Car- that what that is? Well, well, it's Karl Marx's critique of religion. We all know it. He said it's the opiate of the people. Mm-hmm. And he says it's the heart of a heartless nation, the soul of a soulless condition. And then he goes on to say it's the imaginary flowers and the chains of our oppression. And he says we have to get rid of the imaginary flowers so that we can see the chains not so that we despair, but so that we can break the chains and pick living flowers. So that's, that's his critique. Now, he then goes on to say that actually, <laughs> now it's a secular world that does that. He says that the, the beginning of critique is religion, because religion used to do that. But now he says, but now you see that in the world. So in the, the Happy Meal, in Coca-Cola, in the new car, it's promising the same thing that religion used to do. People in the secular world pride themselves in not being religious. But one of the key aspects of religion has always been, you know, you can be happy and whole and complete if you just worship this God, if you just do, you know, say this prayer. And now it's if you just worship these products, Mm -hmm. you know, if you kind of say this mantra and go to the New Age practice on a Thursday night. Mm -hmm. And and what I'm saying is, yet what we need is to break down secular religion as well and be happy in the moment and enjoy our being. And it's incredibly difficult. 
incredibly difficult. But there are people listening to this podcast who are in relationships that are destroying them. They're in jobs that are terrible for them. They're, they're, in, they're in lives that are just oppressing them. And if they don't face that, in 10 years, they'll still be in the same job. Mm. They'll still be in the same relationship. And, and you know, there, there ain't no magic wand here to say it's going to be good. What they need to do is find the courage and the space to be able to look at the things they'd rather not look at, address the issues they'd rather not address, so that they can experience the type of happiness that you're talking about. Mm. Fucking A. I, I often look to the, the energy drink. I think you're going to dig this. Okay. I've never said it on stage because I don't think it's that funny. <laughs> It's too much. So it's too good for stage, but it's okay for it's me. It's okay. Well, the... Po- <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I'll waste the shit on you, for yeah, sure. Yeah. But it's the idea that you're not tired, you're bored. The idea that, like, you're drinking a five-hour energy because your life fucking can yes. suck sometimes, or whatever it is, your job, or whatever it is you're doing, your dinner with your asinine girlfriend sucks. Yes. Yes. So you drink a five-hour energy because your blood pumps... That, that's brilliant because you know what I just had I had that insight into my own life recently I yeah. was suffering from tiredness and low energy all the time and then I took time to reflect on it and I realized that the tiredness was actually a, a boredom which was a melancholy mm. and and that and I needed to look at why I was melancholy and as I looked at that my energy levels got raised again because you looked at the thing you didn't want uh, yeah at. so so again the lack of energy is not the problem that's the solution to your problem your body is saying go to sleep because you don't like your job you oh. don't like your relationship you don't like that. so instead of seeing the lack of energy as the problem it's the solution to a problem fucking a jesus dick butter <laughs> <laughs> my therapist my first therapist not dr gary penn my first therapist uh he told me that he he saw children and when kids said they were bored he knew that that was a sign that they might be depressed it, yeah. it wasn't a one for one yeah not for one. but he was like let's talk about that because you might be depressed and i noticed that too in fact lately again i have real joy in my life and real bliss and I say that somewhat defensively like I want to be known clearly my ego would like to be known and remembered as a happy person but still like I go through months and months of just like it almost manifests as a feeling in my throat where I'm just like why am I heavy yeah. what is it and I actually I, I think maybe to your point I don't want to put words in your in, in your mouth here but the idea that there's an unbearable lightness of of of, of everything of being mm, yeah. that's always with us that we don't need to be afraid of, that it's yeah. okay to go like, yeah, this existing thing, Deepak's over here saying the bliss of existing, we can also say there is an agony to it, yes, potentially. There is. I mean, Freud has a beautiful definition of therapy. I think it's a brilliant definition. He says, I want to take misery and make it into everyday unhappiness. Hmm. And you go like, oh, as though that's the goal of therapy. You know, that doesn't exactly sound fantastic, <laughs> but it's actually quite beautiful because part of, part of what we suffer from is misery and part of the misery, and we can't get into why really, but is often our failure to... Um, you can if you want. Okay, well, <laughs> my mummy never told me she loved me when I was a child. <laughs> I, that's true. Um, no, it's like, the, the, but the, you know, not facing up to your own finitude, our own mor- mortality. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we run from that and we, we find ourselves miserable. And actually, if we can... And, and if you imagine two o'clock in the morning at a nightclub, right, everyone's dancing, everyone's having a laugh, everyone's drinking, it's brilliant. But then, at, you know, two o'clock, not at 10 o'clock, mm-hmm. at two o'clock in mm-hmm. the morning, 
you look out at everybody dancing and you think, what would happen if the lights were turned up and the music went down and we all had to look at each other for five seconds? You know, like, I think the room would be in tears, you know? Like at two o'clock in the morning, the people who are left are often the unhappiest. Mm. But we're pretending to each other that we're happy, but we're caught up in, in a form of misery. Mm. If we can embrace everyday unhappiness, embrace the difficulties of life, we can also find a joy and, and, and a beauty in the midst That's of right. it. You know? That's right. A poetry to it. Yeah. It reminds me of that game show a uh, very, very long time ago. I never saw it, but it's been, it was such an iconic show. This is your life. The idea, mm. you're talking about haunted lives yeah. and uh, ghosts and all that sort of stuff. The way that people, I was thinking, what, what could we do if we cut the music and turn the lights up? It would be so funny that you could play tape. This is crazy. You could play audio of somebody's old neighbor who yeah. used to love them in this really significant way. It, you called her your aunt, but she wasn't your aunt. And if you just had audio of that person, uh, and if everybody had that same aunt, you could play that and that all everybody would just break down immediately. Yeah. But on This Is Your Life, somebody would come on the show and then they'd have the voice backstage go like, hello, Peter Rawlings. And you'd go, that can't be my gym teacher. And they'd come out. But we're all living in this place where we're dancing and we're drinking and we're laughing to forget all the voices backstage that maybe we don't want to oh, remember. Yeah. And I'm not talking about being uh, molested or all the yeah. horrible no. things that can happen. I'm just talking about, like, everyday wear and tear. Absolutely. <laughs> this, is, this is why I love, the, yeah, I love the analogy of ghosts, because a ghost is a presence of an absence. So uh, technically a ghost is, is what's left, an echo of something gone. And so at the moment, so there's Aristotle there in the corner, there's you and there's me. There's somebody could walk into that room right now that would make yours or mine or Aristotle's heart stop. Mm -hmm. You may not think of them anymore. They might be dead. They might be alive. They may live thousands of miles away. I don't know. But but there's someone who would make you go, but they wouldn't do anything to me Hmm. because they're not my ghost. They're your ghost. They're absent from you and that somehow their presence still affects you. And, and if you think of it, like in Northern Ireland, where I'm from, it, back in the bad days, the Troubles, if, say, there was a Catholic family moved into a Protestant area, nobody would talk about the Catholic family, right? Mm. Now, they didn't talk about the Hindu families that lived, you know, 10 miles away, but the not talking about the Catholic family was different than not talking about Hindus or Buddhists. Mm-hmm. So it was a different type of not Gave it talking. more power. Gave it more power. So if, if, for example, I say to somebody, I think, I think your husband's you know, having an affair or something, and the person says, no, they're not, and they kick me out of the house, I have to go, oh, you already know, right? Because why are they angry with me? Why are they mm-hmm. not surprised? They know what they do want to know that they know. That's what a ghost is, a thing that you push down. And basically, there's two types of ghosts. There's poltergeists. You push the, the, them down and they become poltergeists and they mess up your life. But you bring them to the surface, they become holy ghosts. Seance. We have to have a seance. You have to have a, a seance. <laughs> yeah, you, you have a seance, you bring that, you, that stuff up to the surface and they become holy ghosts. That help you? or Just the very act of bringing the pain to the surface is healing in and of itself. It's funny because why do we love those stories? Like, uh, like real ghost stories. People that mm-hmm. tell these real ghost stories, uh, they're real to them. Let's mm-hmm. just, I'm, not, I'm not here to talk about whether or not they're factually yeah. true. But they're always... The family is in some sort of turmoil. I, I, we did a parody of, of this show called A Haunting, so I had to watch a bunch of episodes of it. And it was always, they moved to a new area, the dad was always an alcoholic, usually was a second marriage, and the kid was from the other marriage. Yeah. So it was the woman's child from another marriage. I'm not saying that's iner- uh, inherently evil, <laughs> obviously yeah. not. 
But, like, you could have, like, a closed-minded, angry guy that's like, that's not even my kid. So there's, like, some acidity there. He can't find a job, so he has to work, like, two shittier jobs to make up for, like, lack of one job. And she's home alone all the time. And that's when the haunting starts. And then it's always kind of healed. Now you can go into the fiction of ghost stories or or these Mm -hmm. stories, whichever you want to go to. They're healed when they're, uh, you you know, cleansed, when all the things that are brought... Up. up and the family yes. usually has to bond together yeah. and address the shit. It's like you the wedding to, the bed. Yeah. You have to work out why the ghosts are there. And and usually the mythology of ghost stories is the ghosts are there because um, they can't let go of the world. So mm-hmm. there's you know, we built this comic store on a which is amazing that you're in a comic store. Yeah, I know. <laughs> built this comic store. Yeah, you're living the dream. But, um, the, uh, the, and uh, yet I despair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But say this is built on a, like a, a Native American burial ground and so the reason why the ghosts are there is they can't let go of the earth. And we have mm-hmm. to reason you know, work out why. But actually in Ghost Town, Ricky Gervais's Ghost Town, the truth is shown that the ghosts are there not because they can't let go of us, but because we can't let go of them. Mm. I mean, the whole thing about letting go of ghosts is realizing that we have to do the work. When you're haunted by someone you've lost, someone who you've loved and, and, and is no longer with you for whatever reason, you have to let go of them in order to actually to remember them, in order to be able to hold them in your heart in a way that's healthy so that if they're alive you might meet them three years down the line and you might be able to go I'm really sorry for what happened I wish things had been different but I really care about you Mm. but if you haven't done the work of mourning if you haven't done the exorcism then you won't get to the point where you can have that healthy encounter in the future it speaks a little bit to our need I, I talk a little bit on this podcast about how we're starving for ritual you're talking about mourning that's almost like a biological ritual yes Right. Well, that's why I'm committed to. I, I set up communities that, that, that crazily that for one year communities that do rituals that are about giving up uh, the things that that haunt us. Mm. You know. So in one sense, and, and the reason for that is because we are ritualistic beings. We do funerals for a reason. We don't just leave our dead at the side of the road. We do we do funerals because we know that we have to symbolise. And, and, and mark that mm. death. Mm-hmm. Marriages are the same. We are. People think that oh. We can just, uh, we're, not, we're not ritualistic beings. Oh, I've given up on church, whatever, you know, so therefore I'm not into liturgy. We're into liturgy. Liturgy is very important, whether we're theist, atheist, agnostic. And, and as you said, there's parts of all of us that are theist, parts of all of us that are atheist, mm. parts of all, all of us that are agnostic. Um, but in the midst of that, we all need rituals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we're not good at that. Yeah, especially now, I feel like we're we're losing it even. More. I I like to I talked to my friend Duncan Trussell about this. We were like, again, we're kind of postponing our happiness to this idea of like a commune or a group or some sort of gathering of like-minded people that could make each other happy. But putting that aside, I do find in my own life if I read about a weird hippie ritual or something because I, mm-hmm. I get very obsessed with. Uh, cults or, or whatever you want, communes yeah. sort of stuff. I love that stuff. I'll read about what they were doing. I'll read like weird esoteric books. And I find if you just try it, I'm not saying it's supernaturally absolutely no, yeah. happening, but there's something that you go like, I kind of miss this idea of even if it is phony baloney, yeah. pretend time, yeah. going like, this is the thing I do, crossing yourself 
Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not Catholic, so I never crossed myself. But I kind of envy that sort of practice. Or if it is like in the morning or before I go to bed, TM, you were talking about the New Age sort of yeah. uh, replacement for religion or whatever you want to call it, the, the new religion. Uh, th that idea that you do it in the morning and you do it in the late afternoon, we love that sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. When I was in Israel and they'd, they'd play the, the prayer uh, song, <laughs> I don't know what it's yeah. called, the prayer song, <laughs> I, I, used to, I wasn't like these weird Muslims. I was like... These everybody's doing the same thing yeah. at the same time, and there's something in our lizard brain that loves that, and there's something in our soul that yes. loves that. I mean, I heard that Burning Man uh, was started um, by a guy who was bro he broke up with his girlfriend, and he went to a beach and he did this burning ritual, hmm. and that became Burning Man. You Jeez. know, so and, and <laughs> I, I don't know if that's true, so I don't want to say, but but if that's true, that's kind of beautiful. Yeah. Is this this. This amazing festival that I haven't actually been to yet, um, I want to see, but was started by a guy who was in deep heartache who needed to, to engage in a ritual on a beach. And it connected with a small handful of people and then a hundred people and then thousands of people. And it became Burning. what it is. Now, I would say this, but I would say there are rituals that take us away from our suffering that kind of we like pop music you know and there's nothing wrong with a bit of pop music we all love it but if you always deal with your problem well always deal with your problems by not dealing with your problems right. by going to pop concerts and drinking alcohol or eating a bucket or, of fried chicken that's yeah. also a ritual so they're rituals but they are rituals that draw you away from your suffering yeah like they don't let you deal with it and, and by the way in the, in the depression lots of people went to see musicals because they loved the spectacle and it helped them escape their financial economic conditions mm -hmm. but only for a couple of hours and then it was mm -hmm. right back to it but then there are rituals that are designed to help you enter into the dark space mm. psychoanalysis is one of them um, but there are lots of others watching a big thing burn that it doesn't burn up quickly watching yeah. a man burn makes a lot of people come to face yeah. uh, their mortality and their ego i think that's what yes. burning man is about listening to nick cave that listen to a great comedian these these are rituals that i mean and i, I say there's you i mean i don't know about comedy too much but i know there are comedians who and i don't i don't value this yeah is, it's all jokes, but it doesn't really connect. It's a way to escape life, you know. Right. But the comedians that I love are the ones who, oh, they talk about stuff that I'm, you know, that that bring me into life and and they help me look at the difficult things, ask difficult political questions and economic questions, questions about life. That's a ritual that brings me deeper right. into it. So, to the communities that I set up, we have comedians who will do talks. We'll have singer songwriters do the music. Mm. We'll have poets. We'll have artists, and we'll have rituals, all designed with this in mind. Yeah, I think that's why I love uh, communal stories of communes in the sixties yeah. and seventies. Is because they were like, let's all. They did the same things that have musicians, that have guest speakers, that have poets. And when I hear about those things, the, my modern day version of that is, is, you know, I surf with Rob and then we'll eat afterwards. Yeah. I bring my girlfriend, we swim. It's, ex it's very, very close yeah. to a, co a communal thing, even though it's so casual. It's not like that at all. Yes. But when I read about it, they're all like, swim in the ocean first thing in the morning to yeah. cleanse yourself. You know, that, that's like the dead, the Essenes, all that yeah. sort of stuff. We're not doing it because the Essenes did it. We're doing it because we like surfing but then you get out and you eat and now we're breaking bread and that's like communion and that's like you know ingesting the same sort of stuff and then we have these wonderful conversations then we'll listen to a record and I yeah. was like this is again it's not the thing that makes 
yeah. us happy indefinitely, but it reminds me of our need for ritual. Yeah. And the thing is, and there's a little story, you'll know it, um, but about this Irish guy who was uh, on a desert island, and after 20 years on his own, this plane sees him, lands to take him off the island, right? And they go, before they take him off, they say, where did you live? And so he brings him to this clearing, and he shows him this building. So that's the house. And they're like, oh, it's very impressive. And they see two other buildings. And say, what's the building beside it? And the guy goes, oh, that's, he says, that's my church. I'm a religious man. He says, I built that when I landed and I, I pray there every Wednesday night. And I, I worship there on a Sunday. And then they're about to leave. And they say, well, what's the building beside it? And the guy goes, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about it. He goes, oh, come on, tell us. And he goes, no, no, no. He says, come on, tell us. And he goes, that's a church I used to go to. A terrible place, right? <laughs> now, what I love about this story is, uh, but it, I think it captures the heart. If we always want to say that that place is the bad place, you know, yeah. that, that old church, that old community. So there's two types of community for me. There's communities that go, that last place was terrible. We're going to start a commune that's going to be great, that everything's going to be fantastic. We're going to keep the darkness back there, right? But then you always bring your darkness with you, so that community will turn to shit, right? Mm. But then there's a the community that says, we've got to bring the darkness into the heart of it. We're going to say, we're going to look at the difficult things. We're going to say that, you know what, we can't leave the darkness behind because it's somehow part of who we are. Mm. That kind of commune, that kind of collective, um, I think is life-giving. Mm. Well, you talk about the scapegoat of the pastor. I thought that was fascinating, is the idea that the ideal pastor is someone who doesn't tell us new things or teach us new things, and forgive me if I'm butchering this, but tells us what we already believe, and then if it fails, we can say it was his fault, and then oh, leave. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, you know, that's, yes, that's the role that we want the pastor to play, absolutely. They, uh, they um, solidify our beliefs. And uh, by the way, nobody believes it. Everybody's playing this game. The minister probably doubts half of what they think. I the, can't the, believe how many pastors do. Oh, of the, no, almost all. And I'm not talking about the traditionals. I'm talking about the evangelicals. The traditionals, none of them believe it. Right? I'm, talking, <laughs> I'm talking about evangelicals. You know? um, the, the evangelicals, they have... I, I, it's true, but and, 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 like, there's these bands that I talk to. They, they're just hard to come in and play these songs. They don't yeah. believe any of it. Yeah. But then the funny thing is that the congregation, they know it as well. They're pretending they believe, hands up, all I want is Jesus. No, it's not. They want a Big Mac after church. Yeah. They want this or that. It's a, this fiction that we're all playing. You go, and why is that? Um, the philosopher Slavio Shizek, he used the example of WikiLeaks, and that was very good. He said, people thought that WikiLeaks was about you know, exposing things we didn't know. No, the things that we didn't know was boring. That was the stuff of tabloids. The really dangerous stuff, the stuff that got death threats and the stuff that got Julian Assange um, have in hiding, basically, mm-hmm. in, a, um, uh, in, in London, is the stuff that we all knew, but nobody wanted to say that they knew that they knew. Mm. Black hole prisons, murder of innocents, torture of citizens, we all knew that was happening. We just didn't want to know that we knew it. We wanted to play a game where that we weren't confronted with it. So the minister's great, as long as they don't ever talk about their doubt and their unknowing, keep that locked away and, ev- and we'll play the game. But if a minister comes out and says, I do have doubts, I, I don't know what I believe sometimes, in, an, in a healthy community, that will be accepted. But in an unhealthy community, they'll get, and I've seen this time and again, by the way, they'll get fired mm-hmm. and they'll bring somebody else in. And by the way, the person doesn't have to believe, they just have to pretend that they That's believe. Right. That's, That's in uh, Rob's book. Uh, it's in the What We Talk About book. He talks about an Easter Sunday 
where he didn't believe in God that day. Yeah. And he and I was I, it doesn't conclude. He never goes back to the story. Rob yeah. will often tell the beginning of a story that'll lead him into the the meat of it. And I was like, Well what happened in the story? He's like, Well I just went up and I did the sermon. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like and that's what's that's yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Which is insane. But you're right, that is the WikiLeak of well, it all. I I, mean, I, t- <laughs> I talked to I talked to him uh, an elder recently and, and she said like I don't know if I believe in a literal resurrection. We talked about it. She's in her 50s. She's an elder. She was on the music team. She worked in the Fair Trade Cafe. And I said to her, you know, why do you seem so concerned about this? And she said, first of all, I've believed it all my life. I just have some doubts now. I had cancer treatment. I had a lot of time to think. But she said, if I said this in church, they'd take me off the eldership team. They'd take me off the eldership team. But of course, I asked her then, well, is it because you have your doubts or is it like as in, do you, or do you think other people in the eldership team also have doubts as well? And she went, well, I guess they do because they're the same age as me. They've been in it for a long time. So, we're like, so the problem is not that you have the questions. The problem is that you're not allowed to share them. That's right. So everyone's allowed to have doubts, but you have to keep it hidden. And for me, what I want to do is bring that to the surface. Exactly what we were talking about at the start of the podcast with the, the couple who have all the stuff that everyone knows is there, but nobody talks about. The same thing is with churches. The stuff that everybody thinks is they all have doubts and unknowing, but nobody talks about it. Bring it to the surface and things will change. Oh, and by the way, that's why I think a lot of people didn't like Rob Bell's Love Wins. Mm. There, was a, there was a segment of the evangelical community that hated it. And so you go, why did they hate it? Did they hate it because they disagreed? Of course not. You know, the Amish didn't agree with it. But what are they doing? They're building barns. They don't <laughs> care, right? But the vehement disagreement doesn't signal disagreement. It signals that that book touched on a crisis within that community that the community has been unable to bring to the surface. Mm-hmm. And, and I, again, time and again, I find out the people who really disagree with me. Now, I don't mean disagree and like all my friends disagree with me. That's fine. Yeah. I'm talking about vehement disagreement when somebody wants to kill me. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, when I get to know them, and I've done this a few times, try to get to know them, I discover that the reason is not because they hate me. It's because they're dealing with uh, are there such difficult things in their life that they're finding it hard to deal and with? And you're reflecting. And, and I'm reflecting it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You talk about war being not a conflict, but the inability to cope with conflict. Yes, yes. Because now you have to kill the person because they dis- they believe something differently. So you can't withstand, You can't tolerate it, so yeah. you have to attack them. Absolutely. So it was actually it was comedian Dylan Moran who I heard say that, and he did this skit on it, but he just threw, threw, threw away a line. He said, war is the inability to have conflict. And it made total sense coming from a, a conflict zone that I've mm. come from. I know that, that the reason why you want to kill the person is because you can't stand to be in the same room as them. Mm-hmm. You, you can't engage in the back and forth. That's why the Irish are God's chosen people, because we love conflict. We love a good <laughs> fight, you know. That's, that's an Irish pub right there. Yeah. yeah. You know, we start start the night, we'll have a few drinks, and I'll be trying to give you my kids, you know, by halfway through. And then I don't have any kids, but yeah. if I had kids, I'd give them yeah, to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And then we'll be fighting, and I'll say, I'll never want to see you again. I can't believe your mother can look you in the face and, you know, all of this. Yeah. And by the end of the night, we'll be... I'll see you next week. Yeah, you know, of course. So that's it. Of course. That's good. Conflict is good. Yeah. I remember I was in Times Square with my uh, family. I must have been 23. And my brother, uh, for some reason, he just got it in him. To, he wasn't religious and I was religious. And he was talking about hell. And that, of course, is the big topic in, in Rob's book. And he was just pushing me on it. And I, I couldn't believe the chemical reaction mm-hmm. in my own body, the emotions. He, he was making me live it. Yeah. And it's exactly to your point, was that he, 
then I read Rob's book, you know, cut to 10, 12 years later, I'm, I'm completely away from that. But I couldn't reconcile the beliefs that I was saying that I believed. I felt like I had to believe them. He's, you know, he's talking about the classic hypotheticals, like a Tibetan monk doesn't believe in Jesus, falls off a cliff, he goes to hell, or, you know, a child, somebody lives on a deserted island, all these examples. Yeah. And I was just like, ah, and I was getting so mad at him. And the, the me when I'm really mad is just going like shut up, you know. Like yeah, that's all yeah. I could muster. Yeah. Again, also bad. Like I should have engaged. And then to your point, I could have seen how I was in error. Mm. Like that conflict could have stirred it up. But that's it. I mean, that reaction shows. That just means we've been talking oh, yeah. for an hour. <laughs> uh, that that reaction shows. You know, there's a defense mechanism at work. And and like if, if say for example you believe in God and I don't, and I start to question your belief in God. If you're like, yeah, no, that's fair enough, and I've thought those things as well, and we have a good old discussion, I don't think your belief is a defense mechanism. If you start foaming at the mouth and want to kill me, then I start to wonder if if your belief in God is a defense mechanism. Same with the other way around. If you're saying about my atheism, um, and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm cool, this is what I believe, but I love a good debate. That's great. If I start to want to like tear you apart, it's it it's probably symptomatic of me not having dealt with my evangelical past mm-hmm. or or something is going on. That you're I don't beating know. yourself up. I beat myself all the up. time. The part of you that feels that way, yeah. you're killing him every day. Or you're trying to kill yes. him every and, day. And we don't and we don't know what it is. Like if you have a child in therapy and you say, "Do you like daddy?" and the child goes, "Yes, I love daddy." You don't stop there. You then say, "Does Teddy like daddy?" And then it goes, oh, no, Teddy doesn't like daddy. Teddy, Teddy hates daddy, right? It's, it's not the kid who needs a therapy. It's a teddy bear, right? The kid's fine. The teddy bear's all screwed up. And, and, and the point of doing that is that the teddy bear is, is the speaking of the symptom. What the child cannot is not even aware of because the child has pushed all that stuff down, comes out in the teddy bear. In the same way that even if someone thinks that they've gone away from their evangelical or fundamentalist roots, Actually, they can still be there and they can come out in the strangest explosions of anger, you know, whenever they encounter someone who believes in God. Mm. Like, why would that bother somebody? It, it would bother them if that person was anti-gay or something like that, fine. Mm-hmm. But why does it bother you if someone's just quietly believing something? You start to wonder whether it's, they actually still have to do some work, mm-hmm. you know. Because it's, it gets such a, like me with my brother yes. in the restaurant. What, so what are the things, we talk about the emergent church, we talk about this idea of a church, of a world where pastors are allowed to say, this week I don't believe, mm-hmm. and we still applaud and, and learn yeah. and grow. I, I fucking, I say this every time this sort of stuff comes up, but the pastor of my church uh, had an affair and then we kicked him out. Talk mm-hmm. about, oh, no, we didn't kick him out, but the church split. Yeah. The people that were like, well, you can't do that. And then the people that were like, you can do that. And we forgive him sort of thing. Uh, Like, we don't have anything to learn from somebody that made a mistake. You know what I mean? Like, we don't don't have, like, he's no longer qualified to teach. But people would foam at the mouth and say he's not. But again, there's a very dear friend of mine who I've wanted to do this podcast for a long time. But he works in ministry. And if he told me what he actually thought, he would be fired. So what is it? What what are the windows in the church that you'd like yeah. to open? Well, you think about it in terms of the gay community. You know, there was a time if you said you were gay, and still, to be honest, sadly, there are places that this is still the case. But you know, where you it's, if you said you were gay, you might get fired. You, you know, you get persecuted. But then, when enough people together said it, and you have pride parades and all of that. Things change because now whole thousands of people are saying it at the same time. You can't fire thousands or tens of thousands of people or millions of people. Mm-hmm. In the same way, if one minister says, I have doubts, 
they get fired. But if you can get 10,000 ministers at the same time hmm. to say we have doubts and unknowing, you'll change the system. So I, I have a plan to try to get a, a big declaration of doubt set up where <laughs> I, when I get 10,000 or 20,000 evangelical leaders to sign it. Mm. I will put it in a national newspaper. And, and of course, some people will still get fired because in the same way, some gay people will still get persecuted when that happened. But, it, but together, there's, there's strength and power. Yeah. And so I spend my time working within communities that are trying to do this, mm. trying to, to, to live out this doubt, ambiguity and complexity rather than denying it, rather than engaging in splitting and fundamentalism, uh, embracing it. That for me is actually the essence of Christianity. Is Christianity for me is not a belief system at all. Not a theist or atheist beliefs, nothing. It's not about beliefs at all. Mm. It's about a way of being in the world. It's about a way of embracing your finitude, your, your, your being towards death. And, and by the way, y- y- the place that's promising eternal life now isn't the church. I mean, the church still does, but no one believes it. But it's, <laughs> now, it's now the secular world. Um, you know, they're saying that very soon we'll have technologies where you'll be able to digitally download yourself into the cloud and effectively put death off. And this is the idea that somehow we can, we can escape the lack. But we can't, even if, if, I, if I had this gift and I could touch you in the forehead right now and you would live forever, if I couldn't help you experience the depth of your life, I would be a devil. Mm. Heaven would be millions of people screaming for death, right? Yeah. For me, even if, if technology can make us live forever, we still have the difficulty of experiencing the depth of life. There's always death within life, death of relationships, death of, you know, good things, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying is that religion is not about eternal life as in longevity. That might happen, that might not, I don't know. That's above my pay grade. <laughs> but what it is, it's about a life before death. It's about helping us experience a depth dimension to our lives, about helping us experience um, a density to our existence. <laughs> That's what I want. That's... Yes. <laughs> it's a small that, thing. It's a small thing. I just think it's so tragic that uh, religion and church and spirituality and mysticism, all the words that mean the same thing, has, has, it should be poetry. It should be rock and roll. It should be art. It should be mm-hmm. fucking. It should be drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Richard Rohr, who, who I love, says that religion is in the way of a spiritual experience. It's this thing that's been homogenized and pasteurized into horseshit. Yes. And I can't yeah. say that enough. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you look, if you, interestingly, if you look at Christianity and you look at what Jesus was doing, it seems like he wasn't trying to start a new religion. He was just bringing up the bad shit that was in the religion at the time. He was saying, it's a whitewashed tomb, but there's rotting stuff inside. Bring that stuff to the surface. Now, what happens when you do that is they'll try to kill you. You right? lose friends. Yeah. You lose friends. <laughs> um, but also, if you're successful... You'll, you'll revolutionize the existing religion and you'll also create a new one. Luther was the same. Luther didn't want to create the Protestant church. He had no interest in that. He just wanted to bring up the dark stuff that was in the Catholic church, the indulgences, the being in the pockets of the rich. Mm. As he brought to the surface the, the dark stuff, the ghosts, then the, eventually there was a re- reformation in the Catholic church and also the birth of the Protestant church. For me, you don't start anything new. You bring up the brokenness and the darkness in what's already existing, mm-hmm. and the new will arise. You know, I don't, I don't paint a utopia and say, I know what the future will be. No, what I have to do is I have to say, what's the dark stuff we're not looking at today? If we can bring it to the surface in the church, for example, mm-hmm. in society, mm-hmm. bring it to the surface, then the system will rupture and new things will give birth. Hmm. Fucking A. 
When you say though that Christianity is is a way of living your life, mm-hmm. and I don't, I hear, I think I hear you. I'm speaking for the people that I think are listening. That when you say that, they think that means you don't uh, smoke or drink to excess, and you believe when you die, you go to heaven. Yeah. I think that's what most people think. Yeah. If you say that my worldview is I'm a Christ follower, that means that you have blessed assurance that Jesus is yours, and that when you die, you're going to go home to Him. Yes, which I'm not changes. saying that. I don't. I know. I know you're not. I know you're not saying that. But that changes the way yeah. you look at the planet. That changes yeah. the way you look at your brother, and that changes the way you look at judgment and yes. all that sort of stuff. But what what do you mean? How how well, is it a worldview apart from yeah. the way that we've been spoon fed it? Well, funnily enough, I, I would argue that having a, a worldview doesn't generally affect things. Like for example. The Catholic Church in Ireland has a very high sexual morality, but um, its abuse of children was endemic, right? Mm -hmm. So having a a worldview of sexual purity did nothing to protect, you know, the the way of life. So when people say, oh, if you have the right way of thinking, things will be better, I'm going like, you know, not my experience. But um, (laughs) what I'm saying, and and the last three books I've written, I've been trying to really argue this clearly, is saying that actually Christianity and uh, Jewish and Christian uh, thought can be understood as a way of embracing our lack and our brokenness, of giving up the idea that there's something that will make us whole and complete, um, of learning to live with unknowing, with doubt, uh, to to bear the full range of our human emotions, to find freedom not to pursue our happiness, but as I mentioned before, freedom from the pursuit of happiness, so that we can learn to be. And I'm going to have to say it four. I swear, four more times, yeah. and then I'll get it. Yeah. That's just yeah. how it goes. Uh, well, that's good. That's, yeah, that's that's the other good thing about church. That's Alan de Bouton says this. He says the thing you atheists have to learn from church is repetition. Yeah, you know, repetition. That's right. Get a good message thing. and say it. Joel Osteen every, every week, every week, every week. Everything's fine. Yeah. Everything's Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Please yeah. keep going. I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah. Well, that's it. And that, but what I have to do then, of course, is fight against the the predominant idea that to be a Christian is to have a certain set of beliefs about the world and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. But um, that's that's my life project is yeah. to show that that there's a different way to read the tradition, and I've dedicated myself to that. Yeah. Is it uh, a myth, or do, uh, and or do you believe it? Well, think about it like this. If you, if you, uh, if I'm your therapist, right? Yeah, and you Dr. come to, Gary Penn. I, uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Peter Rollins. I am a doctor. I'm a real doctor, by Are the way. Really? Medical doctors aren't real doctors. Oh. Doctors of philosophy, PhD. I see is professor better. of, well, yeah, people think, oh, you're not a real doctor. You've got a doctorate in philosophy. That's a real doctor. <laughs> the medical doctors, they're false. That's why when you become a surgeon, you become a Mr. or Mrs. again. Yeah. Right? You see, because it's honorary. Anyway. <laughs> Bugbear. Anyway, um, so what was I even saying? I was saying, is it a myth? This, oh, yes, this is uh, one of my obsessions. So, and by the way, I, I don't know why I'm telling you this. You seem completely capable of answering this question. I want you to know that it took me a long time to get to the idea that Christianity, Buddhism, whatever mm-hmm. it is, uh, Hinduism, could be myths. And that could potentially make them more true, even though they're not factually true. Yeah. That's, all, I'm, that's yeah. all I want to say. Absolutely. But if, if you come to me with a dream, so you say, right, I'm your therapist, you come with a dream. I know that the dream has connections with things that you saw that day. It might be books you read or somebody you met. I don't know the bits that, that come from reality and the bits that come from fiction. I don't know. I don't care. 
what I care about is taking the dream absolutely seriously because it's connected with you. It tells me something about your deepest self. So a therapist doesn't ask whether the dream is real or not real or what parts are real or not real. The or therapist if my dad showed up in the dream yeah. because I spoke to him that day. Exactly. That's, that's irrelevant. That gets you nowhere. What I'm interested in is what does the dream mean? What's it communicating? In the same way, when I look at the biblical text, I bracket out the question. So I'm actually close to the fundamentalist because I can say, okay, let's take it all completely true. Just in the sense that I would take the dream 100% true. Then I go, so let's talk about what it means. Because obviously, somebody rising from the dead is a bit boring. If, if, If that happened today and there was a TV program on about it, if it was Tuesday night, we might watch it. If it was Friday night, we wouldn't. You know, we'd go out and party. Right. Somebody rising from the dead is, is at best a topic for a, a conversation at a party, right? Right, right, right. But if, it's a Dungeons and Dragons yeah, hallucination. It's not very interesting. <laughs> but if, if that's an experience you've had, an experience of resurrection in your being, um, that's interesting. So Meister Eckhart, a conservative Catholic mystic, he said it doesn't matter if someone like Jesus rose from the dead a hundred times if, he, if you haven't experienced that resurrection in your being. Mm. So my, my reason for saying all of that is I just bracket out the questions of literal or figurative. That doesn't interest me that much. I've obviously got personal thoughts on that. But my main interest is for someone like you, for example, what is it about the Christian narrative that you're still you know, drawn by, seduced by, troubled by? What? And I, I want to know about that because mm. it's obviously impacted you at an incredibly deep level. And, and that's what interests me. Instead of splitting it. Instead of, yeah, splitting it into kind of... Yeah, yeah, making yeah or it, like, did this happen or did this not yes, happen? Yes, exactly. But Which problem- is a defense. I mean, again, Kierkegaard said, he said, if you have someone who's a music lover, right, and there's one person who's a critic, they understand everything about the music. They could detail it. But, you know, in every, like, every little jot and tittle and all of that, but they don't experience the beauty of the music. But then you have someone who loves the music and they don't know anything about kind of how it's constructed, but they're part of it. Mm. Kierkegaard says you want to be the music lover, not the critic. So if you look at the text as standing back from it, always arguing about what this or that, Kierkegaard says you're acting like a critic, standing mm-hmm. back from it. If you engage in the text like a beautiful piece of art, you walk in and it blows you away, it transforms you. That's what Kierkegaard, he calls it radical subjectivity. Mm. Not relativism, but, so, but it's connected with your subject. That's right. Joseph Campbell talks about studying other religions because you don't enter them with the burden of factuality. Mm. You'll actually understand the message because you're not worried if Siddhartha was really a king. Yes. Right? Yeah, because a lot of these other religions, they, the hilarious thing is they would find it funny when you go, oh, do you literally believe that you know the sun and the moon had sex and created the earth? Right. But like, what are you talking about? Nobody thinks that's an incredibly modern, but they don't even not think it. That's the weird thing. It's like the question would be to some people ridiculous because that's a product of our recent history. And it's a good question to ask, but for if you go pre the Enlightenment, the question of whether, you know, there was a talking snake or something, the, the question of arguing, is, oh, arguing over it is ridiculous. What yeah. it's, it's like this, this encapsulates something to argue about. Now, the question might still be whether it encapsulates something interesting or not, but nobody would be arguing over whether it's literal or figurative. And we're losing something with yeah, it. Babies yeah. are going with bathwaters, right? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's interesting, although I, I think we're on the same page when it comes to any sort of biblical discussion being very uninteresting to me. If we can't, I know you're going to agree. If we can't at least say, 
or it's it's wrong or it's yeah. horseshit. Let's like let's talk about this never happening. This passage. Let's say we're just looking at one thing and it's really fucking everybody up that day. I want to be able, like your declaration of doubt, to be able to say, well, maybe this part's wrong. Yeah. Just, let's just talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated by it, but my main interest is always going. You know what. Are we using our religion or our lack of religion as a defense mechanism? So even arguments over religion often can seem like a defense mechanism. Like we're arguing over this stuff. What's what's that protecting? For example, tribal identity. I I feel part of this tribe, not that tribe. Yeah. So if you start to que- if I start to question my beliefs. I start to feel insecure about my tribal identity. Again, I'm always trying to look for what, what's going on underneath. Yeah. For me, that's what, that's, what, that's what religion at its best is about. That's what Christianity is best is about, is about helping us be more human. Well, then what is the goodness? I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> it's a warning. Recently, I had a new appreciation for the story of the gospel and whenever Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, uh, and, and then it kind of merged with my understanding of the moment and, and trying to be present people. And I was realizing that I was talking to my mother and she was talking about uh, the devil and the devil wants to trick you and lie to you and tell you that you don't belong to God and, and, you're, and you're not worth anything and he's, he's trying to deceive you. That's a traditional understanding of the devil. And then I was realizing as she was saying that, I was like, oh, we're kind of saying similar things. I don't believe that anymore. And, and I think calling him the devil and calling him the capital D deceiver gives it way too much power and it's mythical and it seems stupid. But when I go like, oh, I talk about my mind tricking me and my ego trying to make me believe that I'm the past and I'm this prediction of the future and losing the moment. And the more that I yield to to being just right here, just present, that I feel emerging with what I think Christ was calling the kingdom of heaven, a, a full presence. I think yeah. he was a present person. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you've heard me today. I, I've used, I've talked about ghosts, poltergeists, yeah. Yeah. holy ghosts, exorcisms. I mean, I, I don't believe in any of that stuff, but I believe fully in it. I mean, those terms are useful terms to me and in my work and in, in, whenever I work with individuals and communities, those people know what I mean when I talk about them. So a lot of this language is is, is strong language and, and communicates deep truths. Um, but yeah, but we but deeper truths. Whenever we kind of bracket out the question of whether you know they literally haven't. Somebody actually recently told me that they count somebody counted up the amount of people God killed in the Bible and the amount of people the devil killed, and the devil killed ten people and God killed like three hundred thousand or something. Wow, <laughs> that was quite funny. Yeah, wow, <laughs> yeah. that's really funny. So yeah. what what is the good part? You're telling uh, telling us that it, that it's to show us how to live and show us how to yeah. appreciation the depth yeah. of existence. Well, and at its core, so a lot of religious Christians talk about the good news is you can be happy, you can be fulfilled, you can have the answers. And I'm saying that the the gospel is life is shit and you don't have the answers, right? <laughs> and that's good news. And people go, that's not good news, that's terrible news. So I'm going like, no, it's great news. You embrace your brokenness, you embrace your anxiety and your unknowing, and you will find yourself happier. The, the more that you think you can know stuff, the more you will hate to be around people who think differently, mm. the more afraid you'll be of different ideas. The more you think you can be happy, whole and complete, the more you'll be unhappy because you never get that thing that will make you complete. And if you do, you realize it's not that great. Mm. The good news, and by the way, so in my altar call, if this is the final altar call, you can maybe start 
playing Just As I Am or something. Yeah. I don't know. And I'm saying this, come to the front, embrace the good news that life is shit and you don't have the answers. Now, I ain't going to be able to buy a private jet yeah. on that message. Yeah. They're not going to pay for that. But actually, for me, the rule of the church is to gradually help us come to terms with the difficulty of life and, and our unknowing, not so that we despair, but so that we can overcome despair and truly learn what it means to think well and, and to enjoy life, mm. to enjoy friends, to enjoy commitment to political causes, to look out for our neighbour and, and really to hopefully get a little bit of joy um, in this passing moment that we live in. Is that why we're here? Why, and then on that question, why are we here? Meaning, how, what is the story you tell yourself or the way that you like to understand the meaning of life? That's, I mean, again, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> um, in the, in the, you know, what is, what is the meaning of life? But for me, what I'm kind of saying is part of the meaning of life is to be able to set that question to one side, to be able to live with not having the answer. Because strangely, there's two terrifying possibilities. <laughs> and, and, there is ter- and they're equally terrifying. The Greeks had one, we have another. Our one is the terror of death. Right, the Greeks had the terror of eternal life. They, for them, the gods wanted to be human because they wanted to know they could only experience life by knowing what death was like. You could only experience courage by actually having something to lose. You could only experience the the, the taste of something wonderful if it was temporary, yeah. not eternal. Right. Yeah. So, so they had this terror of eternal life, and they said that the gods would find salvation by becoming human. Today, we generally think that we want to become gods. Mm. We have a terror of dying. I would say that both of them are strangely terrifying. Oh, my <laughs> and, God. And, the, and the, what we need to do... Uh, what we need to do is to learn to set aside both those terrifying things. <laughs> and, and learn to be... And, and Camus, at the end of his book, The Myth of Sisyphus, you know, where Sisyphus is condemned to, to roll a boulder to the top of a mountain and then it rolls back down, he pushes it back up. The, the, the trick of, of being able to find meaning for Sisyphus sorry, is to um, find meaning in the task of rolling the rock. And ultimately, I would add, by, by finding love. Because, cause, and here's, here's where the key is. I mean, we always come back to love, you know. But, but if I believe that the world is meaningful that we'll end up playing harps in the sky for eternity, right? But I do not love. I cannot help but experience the world as meaningless. But if I believe that the universe will end in a cool death or in a big crunch or, and, and that nothing means anything and everyone I love will pass into non-existence, but I love, I cannot help but experience the world as profoundly meaningful. So the meaning of life is set aside those questions and learn how to love. Because no matter whether you're theist or atheist, you're nihilist or whatever, if you embrace love, you will enjoy the taste of life that much more. Hmm. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny that when you started to say that, and I don't want to drag you into some sort of out of your pay grade thing, but when you're talking about the Greeks and the eternal life on one side and then uh, us wanting to be gods on the other, I do – I catch myself thinking things like that, that we, we are part of God, come here to experience God and love and chocolate and fucking, just like Jesus did. Just in that story, the story of Christ, he came 
to be fully human. So here we are, sent from God to be fully human, to know courage and faith and doubt and despair because we know that we die. Mm -hmm. So we had to come here because we came from an infinite place of being oneness with, with this energy and this idea, this vibration, this consciousness that we call God. So we leave that, we elect to leave that, or we're sent by God to come here and be, as Deepak says, the eyes of the universe observing itself, mm-hmm. and then to die, and then we go back to that place. But then we That's a very philosophical of, view, by the way, which yeah. is, I love, by the way, is that we are the eyes of the universe seeing itself. Heidegger basically said that. Is that right? Yeah, so keep going. No, please. No. I was just going to say the idea, it's not necessarily reincarnation, but it's this idea that there's two places. There's the eternal and the transcendent and the thing that no word can touch and we can never describe and put into a movie. Uh, and then there's this place, this fucking boring ass. <laughs> Sometimes I just find myself laughing at the cosmic joke. No matter who it is, it's still just matter walking around spouting yeah. sounds, yeah. theories and ideas, whatever it is. You're just still a three-dimensional colorful thing yeah. that, that is nothing, basically. <laughs> But then we come here to experience and to learn because for some reason the engine of it all is, again, this thing we call God wanting to experience itself and to know more about this perfect loving thing. Well, okay, this is a little bit different from that, but quite close. Hit it. Um, Philip K. Dick, who's a great sci-fi writer, as you know, he had a short story. And in the short story, basically, a guy realizes that insects, the uh, slugs are going to take over the world, right? He momentarily hears their inner thoughts, right? (laughs) And they realize this. So millions of ants and slugs and all of this come up to his house and they're about to eat him. And then these spiders descend, about seven or eight spiders, and they say, listen, we're here to protect the human race, right? You know, so don't worry, we'll fight the, the ants. And the guy's looking at all the millions of ants and said, is there hope? And the spiders are like, yeah, there's hope. And the spiders start eating the ants, right? And then that guy's going, are you sure there's hope? Like, because there's so many ants. And the spiders are going, yes, don't worry, there is hope, there is hope. Finally, the ants start climbing all over him, and the spiders start to go up into the sky. And he says, I thought you said there was hope. And they were like, oh, no, not for you. You're toast. He said, there's hope for the human race, right? <laughs> so it's like this, this story. And you're going, oh, my goodness. He's sitting there going, is there hope for me? And they're saying, no, there's hope for the human race, not you. You're dead, right? Yeah. Now, in the same way, I think, as human beings, we participate in this thing called life for a moment. And we want to survive. And maybe we will. I don't know. But part of being human, I think, is about realizing there is no hope for me, maybe. But maybe there's hope for life itself, that I participate in life that is bigger than me and beyond me and will continue to run. I I know someone who died recently of cancer, and I know that near the end, he didn't have hope for himself, but he kind of had hope for the people he loved who were going on after him. Now, of course, they will die eventually, but they will have people and children. and, and, And maybe the spiritual part of this, and you don't have to be kind of a mystic to believe this, is to say that to be human is to somehow be grateful that we are participating in this life and maybe even thinking that life is what continues to go on. Um, and, and, and there's some joy in that. But it's not a huge joy. I mean, my goodness, you know, we're not going to pull out the firecrackers here and yeah. have a party. It's a bit of a depressing joy. But, yeah. but there's something beautiful about it. Because it's the most true thing. Yeah. It's truth. Yeah. So owning we, the despair. Owning like, despair. Like the pastor yeah. owning the doubt. But, but also the very fact that we're here to have despair and the very fact we're here to have, you know, joy. And I mean, that's beautiful. That's the Heideggerian thing of we are the universe perceiving itself for a moment. How amazing is that? 
That's my Twitter handle, actually. I'm a fragment of the universe perceiving itself no way, for a really? moment. Yeah, oh, because wow. like that's you know, and it, maybe it's more. Maybe, I don't know what will happen, you know, beyond my death or whatever. But and and I don't know if I've really come to terms with my death. I'm pretty sure I haven't actually. I haven't come to terms with my life really. But <laughs> um, but the more I learn how to be. And to love the people who are around me and to love to be here right now talking to you in this cool co- comic shop. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, the more I can learn to enjoy these things, realizing they're passing. Because here, if, if I was here for a month or a year, it wouldn't be fun anymore. If suddenly I went, oh, my goodness, this is the coolest thing I've ever done is, is sat in, a, in a, a studio doing this in a comic book store. I want to make it last forever. It would become horrible, mm-hmm. like a festival. You go, oh, I wish Glastonbury would last forever. No, you don't, because you, will, you don't want to use the port for the rest of your life. <laughs> you don't want terrible you know, food from yeah. festivals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's beautiful about it is it's temporary. My friend Kester Bruin wrote a book on this, and he talked about how you know, even something like Feeding of the 5,000. He said, that, that's a beautiful moment that, that shows something, tells us something when we read it. But it would be awful if it happened every day. Bakers would be out of jobs. Fisher, fishermen would be out of jobs. Nobody would work for anything. It would become horrible. Yeah. Like a festival. These, these are called temporary autonomous zones. The flash mobs is a temporary autonomous zone. It's temporary. It doesn't last long. It's autonomous. It's not controlled by the system. And it's a zone. It's an area. And a flash mob... You have a massive pillow fight with 100 people for five minutes in front of City Hall and then it dissipates before it can be taken over. It's a temporary autonomous zone that gives you a feeling of the beauty of life and it helps enrich the rest of your existence. So I want to create these TAS moments, these temporary autonomous zones. Uh, The Hackham Bay is a theorist of temporary autonomous zones, by the way. Create these spaces in our lives. Wait, what was that? What's oh, Hakim Bay. He's an anarchist philosopher, and I just—he—he he was the one who coined the term "Taz," temporary autonomous zones. Um, and uh, but for me, what makes life meaningful is we have these little moments like this, and this enriches the rest of my day. And uh, and I don't know if I can offer you much more than that, or myself much more than that. But man, that's that's pretty damn good. <laughs> Sometimes I just laugh. <laughs> Sometimes I don't know what to do. Um, I wanted to put. I'm gonna. I'm gonna tell you what's on the notes. These are the moments in the podcast that I wrote. You've been, you've been writing notes. I have noticed this. Yeah. Well, and, then, look, we, and then we never get to them. <laughs> like, like what's triple A mean? Uh, it means uh, adoration, ascension, and access. Those are. That's what I want. Is that what? Did you just make that up there? Now? No, no. It's, it's funny because I went to that thing where Deepak and, and Rob were speaking, uh, yeah. and they were like, "What do you want? Like, just have an idea of what you want." And access is the one that sounds a little bit douchey, but really, what I mean is, I, if I want to speak with uh, Peter Rollins, I want the access to do that because that makes my life better. Like, I enjoy that. You certainly, I could just listen to this podcast, but I like mm-hmm. to manufacture that sort of thing, so I enjoy that. And then ascension would be some sort of enlightenment or whatever it is, uh, if it's just bettering my mind and, and through conversations like this and then I love being adored <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't help you there I, I've, yeah, I've noticed yes you can Peter tell uh, me on the best interview no I'm just kidding if you pay for my parking one dollar fifty <laughs> I will adore you <laughs> that's all that's too cheap for me it needs to be worth more no. I, w- I was talking to uh, a friend of mine an old professor of mine actually and I just very casually talked about uh, my girlfriend and I was like, just talking about how great she is. And I was like, and she adores me, and that's very important to me. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, you say the thing. Yes. And I was like, 
And again, I, I don't mean to be self-aggrandizing here, but it's like, yeah, it took a lot of work to say the thing. I'm talking about three years ago, I wouldn't have said the thing. But yeah. that's the job of all of us, I think, is to find, not to buy your identity with the Happy Meal we were saying, but to actually yeah. figure out what is it that you want? What is it that makes you not want the five-hour energy because you're actually in wonder yeah. and in the moment in, in your life? Absolutely. There's a, there used to be three terms that they used to describe uh, people with low intelligence, right? Um, there uh, it was moron, imbecile, and idiot, mm-hmm. right? And so if I can get this right, the idiot was the lowest. The idiot had the IQ of 0 to 29, something like that. The imbecile was in the middle, and the, um, the moron was kind of like... Uh, from 59 to 70. You want to be a moron. Well, interestingly, <laughs> the philosopher Shizek says when it comes to the world, we're all either idiots, imbeciles, or morons, right? So the moron was someone who just did what everybody expects them to do. So a moron is whatever, in a party, the moron is the person who knows the right dessert spoon to use, the right conversation <laughs> to have. They just, they just know the right thing to do, right? Yeah. That's the moron, right? The, the idiot's the one who always gets it wrong, you know, always messing up, always using the wrong dessert spoon or whatever. And the imbecile is in between. They kind of are in the world, but not of it. They're kind of in it, but they kind of flip it around. Mm. And Shizek says, what we want is we want to take... Well, th- this is my reading of it. So we want to take uh, morons, people who just, we just do the things the way they're supposed to be done, briefly become idiots. So we kind of remove us from the world that we're immersed in, whether it's fundamentalism or atheism, whatever it is. And then we, and be- to become imbeciles. And, and in a sense, you're an imbecile because the imbecile, <laughs> sorry, that, yeah, it's a compliment. <laughs> this is a compliment. Um, an imbecile is someone who, you can operate in the world and do things, but you'll also say the things you're not supposed to say. Right. You'll do the things you're not supposed to do. And those are the things that open up actual possibilities for change. So in a political system where everyone says, you know, uh, we use enhanced interrogation, that's what you're supposed to say. Somebody comes in and says, no, that's torture. That's, not, that's what you're not supposed to say. You're not supposed to call it torture. Um, but that's the very thing that when people go, oh, my goodness, that's torture, things can begin to change. So um, the, the comedian is an imbecile, is the one who says, oh, my, you're not supposed to say that. Mm. Like a friend of mine who, who um, uh, was in a, a relationship, but then he was, uh, you know, the relationship wasn't that good. And he was thinking of, you know, going, going having an affair with somebody else. And he just turned around and told his wife. And you're going like, that's not what you do. <laughs> you don't, you keep it a secret. Right. But that's the real thing. He says, no. So he told her and they talked about it. And that actually became a really productive conversation. Yeah. That's the, that's the crazy thing that most people do. Most people go, you don't, when you do that stuff, keep it down. Don't right. talk about it. Well, my wife, uh, she, I was married when I was 22 and I got divorced when I was 28 and she cheated on me. And she, she told me when we were breaking up, she was leaving me for this other prison. She told me that she knew the whole time that she at some point was going to have an affair. And my therapist was like, she should have told you yeah, that. Yes. That's <laughs> it. Which I didn't yeah. even consider because I come from her school. I come from the like, you, not anymore. Yeah, not anymore. But at the time, I, I definitely agreed with yes. her approach because that's insane. Yes. You don't say that. That's the Irish approach. The old joke about the Irish is, you know, we, we, we hold our emotions down and down and down until we die. <laughs> you know, somebody said to me recently, I was like, yeah, that's very true. See, but even if, like, if, if someone's son dies, like, bury the boy. Just bury the boy. It's mm. okay. So keep it, keep it all down. Keep yeah, it all yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, that's, that's the thing that we have to fight against. Like yeah. in the, the, having the difficult 
conversations. And again, coming back to the practical side of this, the whoever's listening to this show, I mean, this has been going on for a while, so maybe we've got two more. <laughs> we've got two people left. You're not the first person to make that observation. They're like, nobody's left. Nobody's You'll get left. A, you're going to get yeah. all these tweets now. They're like, I listened, right. I listened. Well, listen. this is the gold right here for the two people that are still listening. That's right. Is to go, you know, what is the unspoken thing? Um, in my life, uh, in my relationship, uh, in my work, what's the stuff that I'm not accepting? So take one example, a woman in work, um, her boss is overbearing and angry and authoritarian. And so she, she can't express that anger because then she'll get fired. So she expresses it to her partner and her partner gets it. That's totally fine. That's called displacement, where you take your anger that's directed at one person and you put it to another person because the place that you want to put it you can't, right? right? That's fine because the husband, if it's a stable relationship, will understand that and go, I have to embrace that. And eventually we'll have a conversation and she'll go, I'm sorry, it's about work. And he'll say, well, how can I make it better? And they'll change their work. But the point is in that experience, she is not able to, you know, look at where her anger is coming from or frustrations, but ultimately she has to, to change her work, you know, to maybe look for a new job. Mm -hmm. So what are the symptoms of the people who are listening to this, what are the things that are that that speak of an underlying problem in that person's life? A damaged relationship, a damaged job, a damaged um, you know relationship with one's parents, mm -hmm. and then you go right. Let's bring it to the surface, and will it all work out? Yes, absolutely. Bullshit. Of course it won't. Um, it's a, it's, it's, um, it might ruin the job. It might ruin the relationship. But, but the point is, the job was already ruined. The relationship was already ruined. You know, your your relationship with your ex was already ruined. Mm -hmm. It's just none of you knew it for a while. Mm -hmm. You bring it to the surface, and the opportunity arises for change. Either the thing will break down, and that's terrifying, or it'll reconfigure into something better. But you won't wake up in 20 years' time going, I'm still in exactly the same place in a crisis. So, for example, you could still be married to that person mm -hmm. and you would, it'd be a terrible relationship and you, you don't want that. Right. You've had an opportunity now to go off and, and find something new and hopefully better, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. so. That's absolutely right. Here's a, God, you've said, you've said like, Every 15 minutes, you say something that I could say, thanks for coming on. <laughs> I feel we've done about 10 endings, yeah, actually. No, yeah, I know you have. You've done these really beautiful closing statements, and then I'm like... He, he so, just, anyway. Yeah, I'm like, what? I, there's just so many things I'd like to ask you about or, or you know, talk about with you. Um, one of them is... I think our is going to kill you. Yeah, no, this no, is... It's okay. This is, this is short. It's an hour 40. That's not that. The average is two hours. Oh, is that right? But oh, people I... that get into it very quickly, like you, uh, you sometimes go a little bit short oh. because you hit it faster. Are you saying I'm short? I am. That's okay, a short yeah. joke. This, okay, I'm very subtle, <laughs> but I picked it up. Yeah, it's easier for you to yes. pick it up. It was a Freudian slip. <laughs> Freudian slips are fascinating, by the way. That's something we haven't talked about. Is yet. that right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, go good. ahead. Oh, well, Freudian slips are, you know, if you want to know the truth, um, you don't listen to what people say. You kind of listen to the point where they mess up, where they slip up or where they say something else. And that usually tells you something, mm. some of the truth. So a Freudian slip is where, you know, there's an act or something that's said that becomes the site of truth. So if I'm talking to you as an analyst, you're telling me all about your day for an hour and I'm bored out of my mind thinking about whatever. But at a certain point, you hesitate. That's the point I become interested. Why did you hesitate there? Yeah. So what I'm saying in this podcast is in a sense, look for your Freudian slips. Look for the little errors because the errors tell the truth. 
That's the key in, in, in analysis is that the error is the royal road to truth. And what you think is the truth is the lie. You know, that, that's the story I tell myself about myself. I'll tell you all about who I am and what I am. But then whenever I say mum instead of, you know, somebody else, yeah. you know, why did you say, why did right. you say mum? Well, for you know? Freud instead of your girlfriend. Uh, well, I, you know, I've, <laughs> I've written a Freudian check. I wrote a check to my analyst, which was, I, I put it a date uh, that was a significant date hmm. instead of the amount of money that I owed her, right? Wow. I also had a Freudian email that I sent my other analyst who, um, uh, it was directed to somebody in my publishing company and it said, can you put the lie and believe in red? Because the subtitle of one of my books has the word believe in it. Mm-hmm. I said, make the lie red. I sent it to my analyst. Hmm. You know, also, so what happens, <laughs> you know, it's fascinating how Freudian slips happen, is that, that, that what happens is, and if you create a context where people uh, can, can, where that can happen, oh my goodness, you know, you'll find lots of things will come out. How do you do that? How do you foster them? Because I, I agree with you. I think they're treasures. Yeah, they're absolute treasures. Yeah. You know? I mean, and there's, there's literary examples. There's a poster that I love. I'm going to get a copy of it, of Stalin. It was done in like 1938, I think, uh, by a graphic designer. It's just a propaganda poster. Everything looks brilliant and perfect, except if you look closely, Stalin only has three fingers in one hand. Hmm. Now, the artist took like, why did he do this? Because like, he ultimately got executed. Like, because of it? Yeah, I mean, because of Stalinist era, you know. But nobody noticed until it went to the censorship committee and somebody saw it. And they went, why did you do it? But in some respects, you can read it as a, as a type of Freudian slip. Like, Stalinist system at the time was like, look perfect. You know, everything's great, productivity's up. But the truth was Stalin was hiding something, something like he wasn't quite human. Now, he actually, his left hand, he had a withered hand. So he always hit it in, in photographs. Mm. So in this propaganda poster, the artist, probably without realizing what he was doing, painted him with three fingers. Mm. And it kind of, in a sense, was the truth of the regime. What I argue is that we're all propaganda posters. I create an image. I massage an image of myself, right? On Facebook, on Twitter, on social media. But the truth of who I am is in my three fingers. It's in wherever I slip up. It's not the truth of the manicured image I create of myself. That's right. It's the little detail that doesn't quite fit. That's where, that's where the truth is. And then when that doesn't happen, uh, when you have the shortcoming, having the courage to admit it. To admit it, yeah. Instead and, yeah. of letting the machine answer. Exactly. And th- this is why I'm, I'm against heaven. The, the book I'm writing at the moment is kind of, you know, there's the against hell. I'm kind of writing the against heaven book. <laughs> and and uh, the, the reason for it is I'm arguing that the more someone promises you heaven, the more there's hell to pay. So the more someone says this drug will take away all your suffering, the more there's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. The more anyone says I can give you heaven, the more there's an underside. The more I say my marriage will be perfect and great, the more um, it will be problematic and difficult. Mm-hmm. So actually I was talking to Rob and Kristen about the, the relationship book and I was saying to them that you know, they should start off by saying basically what um, Churchill said about democracy, which is relationships are crap, relationships don't work except when compared to all the other alternatives. Mm-hmm. In other words, instead of buying into the stupid dream that you'll marry someone and everything will be perfect and everything will be great, which, by the way, 20-somethings do in America all the time, mm-hmm. buy into that lie, mm-hmm. that just creates so much destruction. If you can have a relationship where you go, I don't know if I love you sometimes, I don't know if you love me sometimes, and I don't know if this is the craziest thing we could ever do. And in fact, 
you know, this probably will fail because most relationships do. I mean, even the relationships that don't, people end up sleeping in separate bedrooms, you know, mm-hmm. in he- silent resentment of each other. And, and you go, if you can embrace all of that and say, if I was sensible, I'd walk away from you right now and never see you again. And then you say, will you marry me? Will you spend the rest of your life? That's romantic, right? That's romantic. The reason why people try to do all these, like, I don't know, like stupid ways of proposing is we've taken the most romantic thing out of it. And the most romantic thing about a proposal is the madness of it, Mm -hmm. the stupidity of it. Uh, You know, if if I... could bring a DVD back from the future of the time, the very moment when you and your partner break up and it all goes awful and you use the kids against each other and stuff like that. And then you just snap the DVD and say, I don't care. I'm going for it anyway. That's a relationship. Eternal Sunshine. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. Well, that that's movie. it. Yeah, that's it. That connects with the, the original issues. ending of that movie was them, them as old people having the procedure done again. Oh, wow. Over and over and over. They keep, they keep ending. It keeps ending. It keeps ending. It keeps ending. But they keep doing it again because it's worth it. Yes. Or, or it's not worth it. I, I yeah, don't mean to yeah. make it so saccharine, but they seem to find something that they enjoy. Anyway. Yes, yes. No, I mean, I have to think of it because in one sense, I think the, 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 the tragedy of the film is they haven't found a way of moving to a healthier type of state so they repeat and that's what you see with relationships sometimes people who continually break up and then go back out with each other and mm-hmm. continue to break up or you just find the same person in another person in another person exactly yeah. and and actually for me Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is kind of a tragedy because they do have this this magnetism but they they haven't found a way of getting beyond that magnetism to a real relationship mm-hmm. and so they're condemned to repeat um, but so, which is the, the you know which is what we all do. If we don't deal with our issues, we repeat them. Mm. That's the simple truth. If we don't know our history uh, as a society, we repeat our history. If we don't know our history as individuals, we will repeat our history. Uh, Duncan Dressel, it's one of my favorite things in the world. He talks about we're wiping the movie screen, but you have to go back and take the dust off the projector, like it's on uh, the lens. Like uh, you have to go inside and take it off and fix that. Instead yeah. of just trying to whitewash what you can see, very like, good. Yeah. He's like, that's why people keep dating the same person over and over and over and over. Yeah, I completely with it. it's true. Well, that was enough. That was like the seventeenth <laughs> thing I could have said. Thank you for being here. Is there magic in the world? My new book is called The Divine Magician. It's all about magic. What is that? That's one of your books. That's the, the book that's coming out in January. Is it's it the really? Divine Magician. That wasn't a plug. But I was just going like my whole it next sure book is about up. it's it's about magic. Is that right? But not literal. It's about magic tricks. Ah, it's about the illusions. A, illusions. Well, I, I, I do want to talk about that. You want to talk about that, but oh, th- don't I, forget to talk yeah. about oh, Well, the, the big thing about magic, by the way, is, is um, that uh, I'm trying to think is that the film The Prestige has this where someone said, you know, if the audience really believed that, you know, you made someone disappear and reappear, they wouldn't applaud, they'd scream, right? Yeah. There, and, and that's, a, I think, the truth is the truth that's is. That's why the sheet. What's that? That's the why sheet? the sheet. That's why I'm going to put a sheet oh, yeah. over you first, and, and so they can go. It's probably something behind that sheet. This, yeah, happily, you know. <laughs> but if I just touched you and you vanished, everyone would go like, "Take out a handgun and oh yeah, should you? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's yeah. just crazy. And in bad. fact, the whole thing about the prestige, if I've got the film right, is the problem is they create real magic. Like the guy really disappears and reappears, that's right. and, and the problems with that. So what what I would argue is that that we all engage in suspension of disbelief. We believe things that we don't believe. So the person who pays a prostitute, um, you know, he might have to believe that she really wants to have sex with him, right? So that's why he believes in order to be able to have sex with her. Mm -hmm. But he knows that she's not. He knows that he's just paid her, right? Suspension of disbelief. 
he he's able to know and not know something at the same time. If we're watching a horror film, we're able to get into it because I like we terrified while at the same time knowing that the axe murderer doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you, the communion or something like that, you could you could believe in the bread and wine turning to blood and and and, and flesh. You believe it if you're if you're Catholic or whatever, but you don't really believe it. You know, you eat it. Right. So I would say that actually we fully can believe in magic without believing in magic. You know, that again, I'm a di- what's called dialectician. A dialectic thinker always takes the two opposites and finds a way of a third, which combines the two. Mm. So instead of saying there's, a, there's no magic in the world or there's literal magic, you can kind of, I think there's a position where you say there is magic in the world. And yet, in a sense, we can also have a disbelief in the same, at the same moment of believing in it. I mean, the perfect example is when someone says, my child is the most beautiful child in the world. Like they don't really believe it. If you said to them, and, and the worst thing you could say is, no, you know, you're not right. Objectively, your right. child is not. That's a ridiculous thing to say. We both know that they don't really mean it. Right. My favorite comedians are Mitchell and Webb, and they have a great sketch, a sketch, sketch where uh, the guy gets up at a best man speech after the, the man says, I've just married the most beautiful woman in the world. And he goes on to say, you, you don't really think she's the most beautiful woman in the world, you know? And yeah. he, he talks about how, yeah. like, are you so deceived? And the, <laughs> the, so the idea for me, fundamentalism, for me, fundamentalism is the parents who have a child and they say, oh, my child's the most beautiful child in the world. And then you go, oh, that's beautiful. And they turn around and go, no, no, no. We objectively mean that we think our child is the most beautiful child in the world. Mm. So that's kind of fundamentalism. <laughs> but the opposite is not where the parents go. Our child is above average in looks and below average in intelligence. Now, that's mm. not that's the opposite. No, is the, the, the synthesis is where you go, my child is the most beautiful child in the world. And if you say anything else, I'll probably punch you. But I don't actually believe my child is the most beautiful child in the world. Right. And we, we all engage in that because we understand what it's doing Mm. brilliant love it (laughs) (laughs) the other speed round uh (laughs) thing i was going to ask you was um what made what did you say that made me think of it i don't know one of the things that we're not supposed to talk about i think is how we treat animals on the planet yeah and that and i do like talking to philosophers on and i I'm a vegan. I'm not here to convert anybody. That's 100% true. I just spend a a lovely Thanksgiving with meat and dairy eaters and not a word of it. They want to know, but they don't want to know. That's that's the thing that a vegan has to deal with is you get the question and then you have to say you don't really want to talk about it, which is a preposterous thing to say to somebody like – why don't you eat meat? You don't really want to talk about it, yeah. which is fine. But that was that was something that came to mind with me. How do you how do yes, you feel about that's that? That's a perfect example. I use this example actually because here, here's the example of um, the propaganda poster I was talking about. I want to say that I love animals, and I do. I love animals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to know what goes on in avatars mm-hmm. because. I know it's horrific. I know it's terrible. So I protect myself from that knowledge because I want to keep the propaganda image of myself as loving animals. I don't love animals. I eat them. And not only do I eat them, um, I, I know that they've gone through horrific shit before right. it's got to my plate. That's I know right. that. But I do want to know that I know it. So if I see some animal rights, people with leaflets, I avoid it. I'll go on to the other side of the road. I don't want to know what I know. 
I want to hide myself from the knowledge because that I bacon. have. Because bacon. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. Why bacon? Yeah. And That's right. This is the same with like kids. You know, I say that I love kids. You know, but I don't. I don't love the kids who work in sweatshops in India. If, if I don't care about what That's I right. buy, I don't love them. But I have an image that I want to pretend that yeah, I love probably, kids. But I'm I looking at your three fingers. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's so there's there's a disconnect. And the first thing you have to do to change is admit it. You have to admit, I don't love animals. I don't care. And strangely, that seems callous and horrible. But actually, that's the first step to maybe me actually changing my practices mm-hmm. is, to, is to admit to the reality, which is exactly what you have to do in AA. The alcoholic says, I'm not an alcoholic. I could give up any time I want. The first step is simply to admit, I am an alcoholic. Right. And that allows further change. And say, I don't give a shit about chickens. Yes. It's the first yeah. step to giving a shit about a chicken. And this, this is the problem with prayer for me, is that prayer, as it's done in church, for example, is like, oh, I pray for the African kids and, you know, I care about what's going on in Sudan. God bless us, whatever. No, you don't. You don't care about the Africans. You don't care about the people in Sudan. Some people do. They're the ones who are doing something about it. But most of us don't. So prayer becomes a way for us to put out our ideal. I want to look like I'm the type of person who's forgiving and caring. Mm-hmm. Real prayer for me, which is, by the way, not theist or atheist. Prayer is for everybody. You have to be a bit of an atheist to pray because if you fully believe in God, you wouldn't have to pray, you know, um, because God would because already know. sovereignty. Yeah. But, um, but the idea for me of full prayer... You have to be a little bit an atheist yeah. to pray. <laughs> but... but but the really interesting thing about prayer for me is it's like, you know, if people write love letters, they often don't send them because the real recipient of the love letter is themselves. Yeah. You write a love letter, you think it's for the other person, but they might read it once and then throw it away. Mm-hmm. You've probably read it 10 times, even if you send it. You, you had to write it to come to understand yourself. Mm. Real prayer for me is the moans and groans of your inner being where you say, I don't give a fuck about this. I don't care about that. I, I'm angry at my neighbor. I want, I want um, my, my kids' enemies to be killed. And that's in the Bible, actually a prayer where they pray that the, the kids will die, will be smashed against rocks. Mm. And you go, you can't pray that in church. But absolutely, you should, because... The point is, you have to bring up all of your innermost darkness to the surface in order for to see the light of day and change. Mm. If you break up with someone and you're saying, I hate that person, they treated me really bad, and you paint a picture of them as a villain or whatever, and, and I start saying to you, don't, don't, don't say that, don't treat them like that, you could very well turn around to me and say, hold on a second, I already know that they're not a villain. I already know that I'm partly responsible for what happened. Let me get all this stuff up to the surface so that I can come to know what I already know. Mm. In other words, you have to put out all of that bitterness and hatred in an environment where it can be you know, contained so that you can get it off your chest and then go... And you know what? Actually, I wasn't emotionally available. I worked too hard. I didn't care. I was unloving. You know what? It was actually mostly my fault. That's right. But you can only get to that by having a space where the person will allow you to say all of the darkness. Mm. So for me, prayer, in a sense, is, is the spiritual discipline where somebody just puts into words their innermost truth of their being, not because they believe it. They're stupid when people think that what people say is what they think. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. If I say to you, I want you to leave, right? If we're in a couple, I want you to leave. I'm not saying that. I'm saying I want you to fight to stay. But I can't say that. I have to say I want you to leave so I can find out if you want to stay or not. If I had to say I want you to stay, you might stay because 
that's what I asked you to. So I, so I say, I want you to leave. And then you walk out the door and I'm like, what are you doing? I'm doing what you're saying. No, you're not doing what I'm saying. You're doing the opposite of what I'm saying. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah so yeah. anyway, for me, that's it. That's the prayer. Prayer is the, the, the offloading of your innermost being into space. That's amazing. I just had a conversation with two very dear friends of mine where we were talking about a, a family friend of my family who's uh, very old and very sick. And it was just getting graphic. Really graphic. The things, the lengths we were going to to extend this person's life. Mm-hmm. And I, what I, the mistake I made was I should have told them all the details uh, of all these really kind of inhuman uh, seeming, inhuman. Of course, it's very humane to save somebody. I, that's me wanting you to think that I'm a good person. But the problem was I didn't tell them any of the, pro- any of the process that led me to the thought. I just jumped right to the conclusion, which was a very callous thought in the moment, which I was like, just sounds like that person isn't supposed to be alive. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they're very good friends of mine. But in that moment, I didn't bring them along with me for yes. the journey. So I just jumped them with this st- startling conclusion, an uncaring conclusion, but a very, very true. It's just, it's reminding me of what you're saying. There, there is something... I clearly yearn for a place where I can say, when my uh, brother told me about the things they were doing to keep this person alive, eventually my thought was, they shouldn't be alive. Yeah. <laughs> because I needed catharsis. I needed forgiveness. I also just needed to bounce it off of somebody else and go like, am I a monster? Yes. Am I a villain? And, you know, they made, they're comedians, so they, of course, just made fun of yes. me. <laughs> and we achieved catharsis that way. Yeah. But it, it wasn't. It was an interesting moment. It was an eye-opening moment, and how we yeah. can't do that all the time. That's it. There's, there's a famous Christian musician called um, Bruce Coburn, Canadian guy, very good singer-songwriter. But he wrote a, a song called "If I Had a Rocket Launcher," and it's a powerful peace song that got, actually got quite big. But in it, one of the lines says, "If I had a rocket launcher, some son of a bitch would die." And he's talking about um, somewhere where these uh, helicopters are coming over and shooting people in the fields. And um, he, his anger and his frustration. And he was asked in an interview, you know, you're a peace activist. Uh, why are you saying if you had a rocket launcher, some son of a bitch would die? And he's saying, listen, I had to get that out because I was so angry at seeing what was going on. I was so angry. But he said, when I set up, you know, that allowed me to realize that those kids in those helicopters, some of them are conscripted. They're 16, 17-year-olds, that we have been complicit in Canada with some of the political policies that are connected with what's going on. He said, but, you know, how can I come to even start to unpack that if I don't verbalize this? And if I don't verbalize it, I'll end up picking up a rocket launcher. Mm. Right. So that's it. So you might say, I hate my brother. I hate my brother. Right. You put that out there. And then and then someone says, do you really? And he's like, well, no, but I was just so frustrated with him. But if I don't give you the space where you can say, I hate my brother, then you'll push that down and it will come out in a, some really vitriolic way you know it'll you'll be an ulcer or you'll end up killing your brother or whatever you know so so the point is is like you have to admit the truth and with veganism i mean i think this is a huge issue that sadly you're before your time because it's it's so repressed but there there will be a point where we will have to start to come to terms with the profound uh, abuse that we are doing. And I, I am a meat eater. I've tried to be a vegetarian a few times and feel all I ate was cheese sandwiches uh, for a year. It was terrible. Um, I nearly turned into one. But um, is it the profound violence we do right. to these creatures? Like, I actually would, probably wouldn't have much of a problem. I, I know a few people who go out and hunt. That's sure. kind of different, maybe. I mean, but, but like, nobody can justify what they do to make pate. 
Right. You know, nobody can justify that. All right. we can do is pretend we don't know. Absolutely. Oh, I love ducks. I love looking at the ducks on the river. Right. You don't love them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, to your point about the clothes, these these are, I don't know where Levi's makes their clothes, but uh, my clothes are certainly uh, suspect. And and my, my iPhone certainly is. I remember when that big NPR thing came out about Shenzhen where they... I know, it's terrible. Everyone's so like, please don't tell us. I mean, I, I could almost hear myself going, don't tell me this. Don't well, tell that's me that's crossing this. the street. To, I don't want the. Yeah, pamphlet. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I love my iPhone. It's a magic iPhone. Yeah, and and those and I know we all breathed a sigh of relief when they were like, "Oh, that guy was a liar," but he wasn't lying about all of it. Yeah, he lied about the narrative. He, no, he was he lying made... about all of it. Let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely a liar, complete liar. But there's um, something overwhelming. We I, I say on the show from time. I hear to time. that Oompa Loompas make them. They're, <laughs> they're very. Ha- they get all the chocolate they want. <laughs> and a free iPhone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That whole the whole Shenzhen story would be fine if they all got free iPhones. Yeah. <laughs> that would be yeah. fine. Oh, God. Uh, of course, I'm joking. Uh, yeah. Well, we get it. We we can only care about like two or three yes. things. That's what I've realized. That's very key. I mean, if if someone say a nurse goes into a room with a hundred injured people after a war. If she or he experiences the horror of everything in the room, they will not be able to help anybody. Yeah. Sadly, they have to be able to compartmentalize so that they can help one person. So psychology, that's why things like, to be honest, in Nazi Germany, you saw good moral family men who were engaged in the Holocaust because the bad side of it is we can compartmentalize. But mm-hmm. the good side of it is, you know, if we want to do any good, we sometimes have to ignore a multitude of sins to be able to deal with one. Um, and there are people who are very bad at this. I have a friend who, she is so she experiences everything so badly she can't watch the news. If she sees a roadkill on the side of the road, it breaks her down because it's a symptom of, you know, society, uh, you know, impinging on the, the animal kingdom. And she had, a, she had a breakdown, she had a psychotic break. And part of the psychotic break was because she wasn't able to compartmentalise. So sadly, there is a, a point of part of life to be ethical. You have to be unethical. You have to go, okay, I'm going to going to look at these issues and I'm not going to get to look at those. But the big thing for me is you have to own that. You have to own it. And, um, and, 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 and it's the same thing with like saying grace before a meal. I don't do this, but if some people stay silent for a few seconds before they eat, and often it's a way of remembering that other people don't have what, what's in front of them. Now, that's not there to make you hate the meal, to make you so depressed about eating it. But it's also there to keep you aware that you can't fully enjoy the meal, can't fully enjoy it while there are millions of people who have nothing to eat. In the same way, I think we have to compartmentalize and go, I can't deal with these ethical issues. I'm going to deal with these couple here. But at the same time, there has to be a moment's silence in your being for all those other things you can't do. Not so that you're unhappy and depressed, but so that, you know, you carry a little bit of that weight around with you. Yeah. Attention must be paid, that sort of thing. Uh, my final question for you, uh, well, I actually have two. One's a fun one. This is, this is a weird one, and you can, I think you can answer very Have briefly. we started yet, by the way? <laughs> Welcome to the You Made a Weird Podcast. My uh, guest today. Because you did just start, and, yeah. I was, and at one point I was like, are we in this or are we not? Yeah. So maybe we haven't even started yet. The whole thing, <laughs> I know, we yeah. just threw it away. The whole thing is just to uh, manufacture comfort or discomfort. Mm. It's up to you. You're, yeah. you're into both. I uh, yeah. 
My question for you as somebody That's very who, personal. Who, <laughs> I don't want to talk about that part of my life. Anybody, <laughs> anybody that talks about uh, Jesus at all, I think one of the questions that people listening uh, might want to know is, do you think that people need... Uh, need Jesus or are you more of the mindset that it's like who are you to say what they need and this is your trip do you enjoy the the biblical worldview that we were talking about or do you think Aristotle needs to convert I definitely seems very unhappy there. Um, well, for me, for me, beliefs are like, I mean, it's the childhood thing, but beliefs are a, largely a product of where you're brought up. I mean, if I was brought up in, in India, I'd be a Hindu. If I was brought up, you know, in, in Russia, you know, I might kind of be atheist, whatever. So our beliefs are basically, I mean, it's, it's weird the way like a lot of people in America are kind of Christian, just a bit like their parents, you know. Right. So our, our, we're th- what Heidegger says, we're thrown into a world. And in that world, we're given texts, books and language and ways of framing the world. And we're, but we're also projecting out to new frontiers so we can read other things, we can find new ideas, but we're thrown into a context. Uh, my, my whole thing, as I say, is nothing to do with belief at all. For me, what I see in the, in the context that I've been thrown into, which is Western philosophy, Christianity, like one secular philosopher I like called Vadimu, he says, how could I not be a Christian? He says, in a sense, if I've been immersed in this Christian narrative and these stories in Western philosophy, which is very influenced by Judaism and Christianity, um, these have influenced the very way I speak and see the world. With these texts, um, I see a way of being in the world um, that we've talked about and is basically the core of what we've been talking about today. I see this being lived out. And for me, it's not about faith in Jesus. It's about the faith of Jesus. It's about seeing that, that what you see in all of the prophets and, and in Christ and in, in, in all of these revolutionary figures since is what they generally have in common is they're thrown into a place and they look around at the dysfunction that's not being talked about and they bring it to the surface saying, you think you've got a clean cup? The, the inside's dirty. Let's start by cleaning the inside. You think you've got a whitewashed walls? Well, it's actually a tomb with rotting carcasses inside. Let's bring them out. And that is, for me, the move. And anyone can do that, wherever your culture is, whatever you're doing. The person who says, I'm not going to bury the ghosts. I'm not going to make them poltergeist. I'm going to bring them up and I'm going to make them holy ghosts. Mm. That, for me, is what's um, exhibited in these texts. And that, I think, is, uh, is possible for anyone to do, but very difficult. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's much more difficult, you know. I don't do this. Um, you know, if, if I can in my life live more um, bringing out in my individual life, in my communities, in my political life, bring up the, the, the rotting bones, um, I think that I will leave this place a little bit better than when I entered it. Mm. And that's all I can hope for. 19. <laughs> the nineteenth moment that, you, that I could have just been like, "Thank you, good night." Maybe we could just split this into like yeah. like a hundred different five oh, minute shows. I could take a couple months off. Not, yeah, that, not yeah. that I really need it, but I'd be like, I could go. Can we make vacation. it the Pete Rollins show? Exactly. Yeah, no, we'll call it. You made it weird with Pete. Yeah. We'll just say it with Pete, and no, they kind of decide which one that's do good. they think it is. Very good. If we have both names, I, I'd like mine first. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Even you may as well I, just get this stuff out, unless you pay for the one fifty. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got a ticket because you didn't know the podcast was two hours. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> Can I just say that what you made me think of was I get so upset. It's it's my own baggage when I see a baby wearing a sports jersey. I hate it. 
Something about you talking about like the way we inherit. Oh, like yes. we're born into oh, a yeah, culture, yeah. we're born into a worldview. And I'm from Boston, and there's just no place like it. I think. You know, I'm sure Notre, Notre Dame is Notre, Notre Dame. Notre Dame. Notre Dame is the same. I know a lot of cities are this way, but I feel like Boston for sure. We all wear the uniform and we all buy into a certain ideology. And it's not just sports fans. It's like I'm this, and this is what mm-hmm. people from Boston do, and this is what people from Boston believe, and this is how Boston people behave. Not everybody. Certainly, yeah. it's a very intellectual town, and there's a lot of different types of people. I don't mean to paint with too broad a brush, but when I see my friends do it, they put their babies yeah. in a Red Sox jersey, and I. I just want to light it on fire. Not not yeah. with the baby. <laughs> yes. I just want to take the shirt off and just say, like, what if they like the Padres? You know yeah. what I mean? Or like, yeah. or in my case, what if they just don't like baseball? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, totally. I mean, but sports is a good example, apart from that bit. But kind of, uh, of <laughs> Look, but, we're not burning the baby. Yeah, we're not burning the baby, yeah. But oh, it's a good example of... Um, healthy defense mechanisms because in sports it's all about splitting you know there's the side that are bad there's the side that are good and we want our side to win and that's a form of and that's what I really want to get across is defense mechanisms there's like about 15 of them that we know but um, they're not bad in and of themselves they become bad whenever we hold on to them so tightly but society kind of gives us some ways to deal with them so splitting is sports Sports can allow us to get certain conflicts out that we might not be able to get out in our workplace. That's kind of useful. However, it becomes problematic when it becomes its own religion and, you know, you bring up your kid in it and it it becomes this obsessive kind of thing. But if you don't take it too seriously and you enjoy sports, it's a great way to... um, to deal with some of the stresses of life. Mm-hmm. Again, it's, you know, one thing can be bad for a person and good for another. One person keeps fit because they enjoy feeling healthy. Another person because they're terrified of dying. Mm-hmm. One person likes sports because it gets the aggression out. It, it's, it's, it's enjoyable. Another person because they can't cope with the horrible relationship that they're in. You know, <laughs> and, and you can tell the difference because the person who's frenetically involved in something is generally covering over That's something, right. whereas the person who's just doing it. Is Beware like, yeah. of the guy that really has that strong yeah. emotional response. It's like, cause like you know, there's the old problem if someone asks, "Are you an alcoholic?" problem is if you say no you go like well that's exactly what an alcoholic that's would right. say right and if you say no but i really not go, exactly that's what an alcoholic yeah, would say yeah, yeah, yeah. but the, the difference is um an alcoholic will say no all the time even when you're not asking them you know you go to a party there's a few drinks and they say oh i'll just go down the road to get a few more drinks i'm not an alcoholic or anything i just think we should right, have more right, alcohol right, right, right. then you know it's a problem right because it's the person who keeps telling you that they're not something when you don't even ask that's right. That's an issue. I have a joke about that. Uh, a friend of mine who I believe to be gay offered out of nowhere. He goes, I'm so straight. And then he, out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. And then he had an example of how straight he was. Yes. I was like, that's a, that's oh, called denial. Boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, final, final question. Pete, this, is, this has been transcendent and amazing, and I really appreciate you taking the time. It's, I've it's, so loved it. It's it's one of the, I'm going to listen to it again, because everything you're saying I know is a labor of a lot of thought. And you say it very uh, casually and easily. And I hope you're not saying this in the LA way, because in the LA way, people say, you're brilliant, you're amazing. Yeah. You walk out the door and it's like, ditch that, Aristotle, get rid yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah, we're not even going to release this <laughs> Yes, one. this is gone. I mean it in the, in the good way that it's ref- reflexive, like a reflex. Like yeah. I can ask you about something very heavy and you have an answer, but I know that that's the representation, the manifestation of hours and hours and hours oh. of study and, and reflection. So I appreciate you sharing that with us for free. So thank you for yeah. that. The final question, and you don't even have to have an answer for this one. Uh, I like to ask people the hardest time they've laughed because it's almost always just fun to watch them remember. 
The hard, that's a brilliant question. The hardest time I've <laughs> laughed. It makes you laugh just thinking. Yeah, it does. It? I, it's never not made me laugh. Even if they're like, you had to be there, I still laugh. Oh, you know what? That, you've stumped me. I've, like, you've asked me questions about the meaning of life, <laughs> Jesus, reli- what religion's true, heaven, hell, and yeah, I'd be yeah. like, oh, that's easy, got that's it, easy, got that's it, got it, got it, got it. Got got it. it. And then you ask me about a time that I've laughed so hard. It doesn't so have hard. to be the hard. Here's a yes, couple things that'll uh, loosen it up. It doesn't have to be the hardest. It doesn't have to be a good story. That's important. Oh, yeah, well, see, that's because I'm a storyteller, so I like a good it story. It doesn't have okay. to be like, I opened that's the good. door and my father was wearing the clown wig. It doesn't have to be that. <laughs> I'll tell you, like, one of mine. I loved was we were watching the Emmys. We were we were smoking pot, and my friend said uh, we were singing. There was an overweight Asian guy singing background vocals, and for some reason he just started singing. Uh, it's just an overweight Asian on the background vocals. But then when it cut to him, he changed the pronoun to "I'm just an overweight." Like he was singing, and for some reason. That made us laugh for about okay, 45 minutes. Wow. That's it. That's it. That's not a good story. That's a, that's a great story. People do like overweight yeah. Asian on the background. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but something about when it was on him, him singing from his perspective, really cracked it open. But I mean... Okay, well, I, I'll tell you one that happened recently. Well, yeah, what, my funniest friend um, really is uh, my friend Jay Baker. I don't know if you've heard of Jay Baker. He's the son of Tammy Faye Baker and Jim oh. Baker. But good, really good friend of mine. He's very funny. Wait. Didn't, did he have a reality show? Yeah, he does. I saw yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I saw it. He used to smoke a cigar and preach in bars. Oh, yeah. That's him. I and know him. He's so, fun, he's so funny because he's so messed up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he always makes me laugh. But it just the other day, I wrote this uh, post, this blog post. And uh, the title was, or on Twitter, I wrote, um, you know, this is not a case of, you know, some small problem. Rot has gone through the entire system. And Jay phones me up really serious and he goes, I'm really sorry, man. He says, I see you've just written a post about your career. (laughs) (laughs) That made me laugh. (laughs) It made me laugh and cry at the same time because there's a little bit of truth to it. (laughs) I love uh, getting the piss taken out of it. I just love it. Oh, you'd love Ireland. Have you ever been to Northern Ireland, man? Our our entire humour is to knock people down. We're incredibly good at it. That's great. That explains so much about (laughs) the people that my uh, father knows. Uh, Well, thank you so much. We end every episode uh, with the guest just saying, keep it crispy. I can explain it to you, or you can just, you can just say it. Okay, I'll just say it. Uh, keep it crispy. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell does that mean? <laughs> it just means uh, this conversation was crispy. It's a good thing. Oh. Keep it present. Did, did I do it well? Keep did it I light. Do, you did, did it I do it in my English accent? No. Do it, try I, it. I actually don't have an English accent. I keep saying that. No, I don't you have can. One. You got to. What is an English accent? It's just like, hello. No, that, <laughs> that's that's co- that's very cocky. Hello. Hello. Hello, keep it crispy. Keep it, keep it crispy. Keep it crispy. Keep it crispy. That's Michael Caine. <laughs> oh, yeah. Keep it crispy. <laughs> I like the way you said it. Better. Well, thank you so much, Pete. Cheers, Sincerely. man. Sincerely, wonderful. Delete that. <laughs> now leaving nerdist.com. 